Boom. Briar, welcome How's to the going? podcast, man. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. For so sure. Briar and I met on Clubhouse, a social media, audio-based social media app. And uh, I remember one of the rooms I was hosting, you came in. I think it, it might have been one of the rooms I was hosting. It might have been someone else that was hosting it. Anyways, it was something on philosophy, which sometimes I find myself in a deep, dark rabbit hole of entering these like philosophy consciousness rooms that I have no place in being as like an <laughs> experimental neuroscientist. And then uh, I, I remember you told me, you said, you know, because I did pretty bad in philosophy in undergrad, and uh, and you said, well, it wasn't you that failed philosophy; it was philosophy that failed you, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty hilarious. But, um, anyways, so I wanted to bring you on because uh, of you know, I I admire some of the ways that you handle debates, and uh, I know you said that you had a sort of a background or a formalized background in debate itself, which was yeah. rather intriguing. So how? So first of all. How are you involved in the world of organized debates? I didn't realize that this was some, it was as big of a ring as it really is. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, uh, there's this group called the NSDA, which stands for the National Speech and Debate Association. And I believe it's the largest, um, how would we call it, interstola- interscholastic, intramural uh, organization for competitive events that go through school. So bigger than football, baseball, basketball, et cetera. Um, it's in multiple countries. It's expanded beyond the United States and that's just one organization. So, uh, when I was in college, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I went back and originally I was going to be a biomolecular engineer and I thought I had my future set out. I thought I knew where I was going. It was back. I think uh, you're roughly in my age range. Uh, it was back when that bubble was happening and everybody was going to be a tech billionaire out of their garage or basement or something like that so uh, mine was a garage in Burlingame and uh, it was doing water cooling for computers and left school uh, and and decided I was going to go a different direction and when I went back I just had this one teacher that quite literally forced me um, from a I took one public speaking class and he literally dragged me over and said hey uh, you're going to take debate you're going to love it and the rest was history (laughs) that's how I kind of got dragged into it and uh, the world of it's just massive it's at the collegiate level. It's even bigger in the high school level. It's expanding to the uh, middle school level, which was a big kind of area where I guess you could say I was I was a bit of a pioneer, especially in this part of California, for trying to create middle school and elementary school debate. Um, and over time, as my kids got, you know, I started coaching high school. As it got older, I started coaching older and older people. But it's a massive world. I mean, you can go to tournaments in a given year. We can do 36 tournaments. And the thing that some people don't realize about a debate, a debate tournament is that they'll start at say seven or eight in the morning and they can go 11 or 12 at night. Oh so my it, God. Yeah. Yeah. That's for <laughs> potentially two to three days in a row, depending on how far you make it in the tournament. So it's, it's like doing a whole sports season a weekend. So it's this massive undertaking. Uh, you know, the majority of major universities have events. You can travel nationally, internationally. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. Yeah. The uh, I guess I, I uh, first realized that organized debate was sort of a, a hot thing, not even hot thing necessarily, but, but sort of on the the spectrum of things that you could participate in. With uh, what was it, Billy Madison? I think that had the the or was it Billy Madison? One of the movies that had uh, some form yeah. of debate. I don't remember. There's been a couple. There's been a couple movies that have dabbled in it, but to be honest, I wouldn't say debate's been depicted very well. Yeah, uh, in most cinema, and and it's ironic too because it is the most arguably film friendly. 
because it's communicative, it's expressing who you are as an individual, so much emotion and personality comes out. So in, in all these different films, they love to pick up these these quirky things and mainstream things. And you got this weird intersection of both. I have no idea why we haven't had more good films about debate. There's e- there's only one or two documentaries that are pretty decent around it. You got your next thing lined up now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so there's different styles though, right? So is like, what are the different styles of debate? You know, because I think from most of us, when we come in to look at it, we just think about two people just, you know, bashing each other in the head uh, philosophically or, you know, with different ideas to try to get it across. But what are the different like organizational ways that they have it set up? Yeah. So uh, even at the different levels of whether it be high school or collegiate debate, they're slightly different formats. So usually considered kind of the grandfather of debate is policy. And a policy debate round will usually have some sort of central, hence the name policy, question, uh, should you do some sort of an action from some sort of an act or putting something into the world? And that's the way it was done for a long, long time. So policy will usually have two teams of two. It can be done a little small tweaks, whether it's high school, college, but usually it has two teams. Uh, You have limited time, although you'll debate the same topic for the entire year. And the style of debate I specialize in is a little bit different from this. So where it contrasts is you will, I've heard some lawyers say that kids, even high school kids that are really at a high level of academic debate by the end of the year might know some of these specialized topics better than the majority of the adult professional field, at least a lot of the nuance. So you're engaging with the same articles. I mean, I know in your profession, obviously you're engaging with like the same paper. You might read it and read responses to the paper, criticisms and reconstructions. So this is really something that, uh, you really become a master of it. And it's two teams. And what's also interesting is there's a short part in the debate. So one of the, one of the big things that make a debate, I always say, is there's kind of five ingredients, right? There's a judge and people, it, it just seems so intuitive that they forget how important it is. So when people picture a debate or a lot of the, sometimes you hear negative stereotypes, that would be if there was no judge in the room. You know, just two people argue to be obstinate and who are you going to figure out to win? <laughs> yeah. The whole idea is like you have this third party, this tripartite relationship where two sides are trying to convince another individual. And that changes the whole game, right? Because you're really not speaking to the other side. To a large extent, you're not even necessarily disagreeing with the other oh. side. Oh. Yeah, you're talking to the judge. So think like when you see the movies, right? A good lawyer doesn't sit there and look at the other lawyers or the, def- you know, the defendant or prosecutor, whoever they're looking at. They look at the jury. Or if they're talking to the judge, they look at the judge. And that's one of the big misconceptions that people have. So if you're being extremely disagreeable or rude, that's, you know, people think, oh, these debaters must be just utter jerks to each other. I mean, that's going to, that's not necessarily going to appeal to a judge, especially depending on the format and the way they're judging. Um, so I'd say that, that that's kind of policy debate. It's the granddaddy. And it's evolved in a way that's made it especially technical. And that means that um, the arguments are really evaluated in how you present them oftentimes in a vacuum of knowing what the truth is so it's it's like the judge oftentimes will aspire to be we have this term we use a lot called tabula rasa or blank slate so you're actually trying to pretend you know nothing so the the kind of garbage example that's illustrative is is if you're like you know the sky is purple therefore i should win uh, some judges that really embrace this go, well, unless the other time convinces me in some way it's not purple or says why that's not relevant, I'll vote for you if you tell me you win because the sky's purple. And it makes <laughs> it much more technical, like chess. How do you yeah. counter? How do you engage with these arguments? What are the patterns that play out? Uh, so that's kind of how policies evolved. And then is, is it hard to like if you're a judge, is it hard to maintain that blank slate? 
or, you know, because obviously with like a lot of the topics that you're going to come in with a bias somehow, whether it be right. intrinsic or extrinsic. So I'd say it's, it's frankly impossible, right? So if you want to get into some of the philosophy of it, it's going to be filtered through your language and your understanding of the world and your background experience will play a role. So let's say you really go in there and you try to the extreme, you're going to almost, uh, try and do pure like propositional logic to try and break down who said what and, and what's true and just go down that. You're always going to be filtering through language and understanding to some extent. So a lot of times what judges do is this has evolved a lot. This is where it's newer and there's a certain level of uh, change in what the fields become. Judges list what's called a paradigm. So they'll say, here's how I like to evaluate in the round. So for example, um, sometimes in debate, we can take for granted things. Is human death inherently bad? And, and that sentence might feel incredibly obvious, but then ask a question, why do we go to war, right? Yeah. Most nations, you know, at some point in time might engage in some sort of conflict, law enforcement. And so death, we usually say, isn't inherently bad, but it might be something that at all times we want to minimize. And so some judges in their paradigms will say, look, I'm going to default to assuming human death is bad. So you don't need to explain to me why death is bad in the round. Now, if you want to reject it and say death is good for some reason, then you're going to have to do some work. Or they might say, I like a certain style of argument. I like a certain flow to things. Um, and it gets into a lot of technical jargon, which obviously in a podcast like this, it might be like, whoa, back off for a second, buddy. Um, <laughs> but we, There's you know, no can, rules here. <laughs> yeah, we can go to things like, uh, you know, do I want um, do I want to judge this uh, debate round as a reasonable person? So am I going to uh -huh. go in and say, I'm a reasonable person. I understand the world. I'm going to use my reasonability to evaluate it. Or do I want to do competing interpretations? So I want each side to give me an interpretation and I'm going to try and pretend I'm not reasonable at all. I'll just do whatever you tell me to. So a funny oh, example geez. once so do you, is do you I had to like, as a judge, are there different personas that you like take on depending on what the debate is based off of? So I would say most judges probably try pretty hardcore not to take on quote unquote, like a persona. Yeah. Um, they try and either. So in the real world, this is a problem, right? And, and we deal with this. We know that there's implicit bias as a very real phenomenon, right? And to explicit bias, I have this certain ideology about how the world should work. And the idea is when we're judging debate, we're trying to judge it on the merits of the round. I think most people would like to think that the rounds aren't decided before they've begun. And to do that, there's kind of two ways to make it more fair. One is to try and go that you can be in this enlightened, neutral position of, of I have no biases. I'm purely logical. You know, I'll be persuaded only that way. The other way is to say, I can't ever get rid of my biases. Here's what they are. Now, it's your job as a debater, kind of like a juror or a politician or somebody's trying to get a job. You know, the other person has biases. You're just trying to win them over. And I think th that is kind of the two competing philosophies on, on, well, there's many, but those are two of the big competing philosophies. There's a, another school of judging that says very much you should not take the humanity and the positioning out of a judge. So they should be exactly who they are mm. and, you know, express who they are through that judging and, and bring that to the table. So it's a little bit, uh, it's tricky as, as a judge, you kind of pick your persona. And I noticed that when it comes to debate, some people take the judging so serious that they feel almost more stress or as much stress as the debaters and other feel like a, a sense of entitlement and power in that position of being the judge. Yeah. And they feel like, you know, I'm in there. And and it's just, uh, it's tricky. I mean, I, I think you've done some competitive sports as well. 
you know, think of refs, right? Some refs are like, I'm a God, respect me as a God. And others are like, <laughs> this is a big job. I want to get it right. And it's, well, it's, you know where I good. see that? Uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, but like when you're put into the position of a reviewer for a scientific paper, oh yeah, you know, you see it's off, you know, it's kind of the, I don't want to say stigma per se, but it's sort of like the, the, the known secret that sometimes the more junior the scientist is, the worse that they can be as a reviewer or the more harsh that they can be, not worse, but the more harsh they can be as a reviewer oh, because it puts them into a position where now they finally have say over what is and what is not correct. And so usually if your paper gets assigned to a postdoc, for example, to, you know, as a, as a primary reviewer, you're going to get 15 pages of just the most brutal review that you could have ever imagined, or it could go to some, you know, highly esteemed chair of a, of, of a department. And you're going to get three lines that just say like, this is a great paper. There's one little thing you got to fix. Boom, done. And, you know, it's, I, I somewhat, I don't, I don't want to say that I lucked out, but I, my advisor for my PhD, when I started, he was, I believe he was 78 years old. And so I sort of had, that was where I learned a lot of my science things. So I tend to be a pretty nice reviewer. Like they already, they're, they're more of an expert in the field than I am. That's why they're publishing a paper on it. So I'm just going to make sure that the stats line up and there's nothing like real fishy, but otherwise like good to go. But anyways, like when you put that into like a debate type of thing, if they come in with a preconceived bias towards something and now you've put them into a position of power to decide what is and what is not the correct argument or what is and what is not convincing, I can see where it can sort of like snowball out of control. I, I often say that, um, so I've taught a lot of different fields. Uh, you know, for most of my teaching career, people would know me as uh, Sensei Briar. So I taught martial <laughs> arts for like 20-ish years. Um, practiced and taught. And I would say that I've never seen, I, I, martial arts for me was really transformative. I think I know for you, you've trained as well. And yeah. for a lot of people that have, I think it becomes something very important for them. I did very traditional style. Um, when it comes to debate, I feel like there's nothing that exposes so much of yourself. It really does make you take positions, puts you under stress and anxiety, shows you how you handle wins and losses, um, exposes so much of your bias and confronts you with dealing with facts in the real world and the subjectivity of being a person. And I think that's one of the most potent, powerful things about debate is what it exposes of yourself. Now that can go really good or really bad. Yeah. You know, like there's a few years ago, debate tends to end up in the media, like academic debate when something's gone wrong. So a few years ago, mm. around the time we're Project Debater, and this is so funny with LLMs now, because uh, Project Debater just seems kind of cute and quaint in some ways. But I don't know if you remember it. IBM came out with this. It was supposed to be the big evolution. There was Deep Blue that could ch play chess. You know, there was these machines playing Go. Yeah. And then they're like, whoa, we've made a machine that can just do a debate. And you can give it any prompt and it can uh, debate with the other side. So if you watch it, it was, it was a big deal on the cover of New York Times and everything. Um, I think they had it on Jeopardy at one point too, and it was answering questions. And so it's kind of the precursor, right, to these LLMs. And at that time, debate was in the media a lot, right? It doesn't tend to be, it tends to be this really obscure, like everybody knows it's there, but you don't think about it. And apparently there was this person that was presented as, and they don't do the format I do, I believe they're from the UK. It was supposed to be, quote unquote, the most successful debater of all time. And he wrote this opinion piece on how debate had kind of wrecked him. Because whenever he was engaging with somebody, he was always thinking of what is the counter argument to that? How do I reframe it? And even if he wasn't being openly disagreeable, he uh, kind of lost that ability to just engage with another human being, connect, um, to not be confrontational. 
And if it's done wrong, I've seen that trait in courage. And I've seen there be a deification of logic and argument. So that's where you get these, uh, let's, let's leave them nameless for the moment, but these toxic figures that can be like, you know, I'm just about the facts and I'm the best arguer ever. And I'll take anybody on come debate me, bro. Right. The debate yeah. bro mentalities that can come out of debate. And, and that's a problem systemically, but when it's done right, it allows you to examine yourself and kind of find who you want to be and refine it. I equate it to like making a really fine blade, right? You're going to like scorch it and make it crazy hot and then quench it. And by freezing and expanding, and contracting extreme heat and extreme cold under that stress and the microfractures and reforging, it becomes incredibly strong. And that's what I think debate does if it's done the right way. It takes your most core ideas, who you are, puts them against somebody who's extremely skilled in breaking them down. You're competing one-on-one in front of this judge with their own biases. So there's this triangulation. Yeah. And then you figure out, okay, what, what do I really stand for? What was I wrong about potentially? Who am I as a person? And confronts you with some of the realities of the world, right? Think of the echo chambers and the politics that we exist in nowadays where people can go and just have to, I mean, you know, debate inherently is com- controversial, right? Where is the role of gender in a society? How should we be using our language? Um What's the role of a nation state, uh, capitalism and communism or something transcendent beyond those two, like put everything out there and we're engaging with that. And that can be when, when you're not able to just roll back to, oh, we all think this way. It's really challenging when everything you say can be engaged with. Yeah. Well, it's almost interesting that you mentioned, you know, if we just completely remove all bias or all subjectivity into a debate and you just purely look at objective facts and or if you if you take someone that is just purely laying out here's the objective truths of this argument and here's the objective truths of this argument and i'm just going to argue for this it almost like you said it can create a worse position because now you've you've somewhat it's almost like you need a little bit of sprinkle of subjective emotion into whatever it is that you're debating in order to make it completely convincible is that right so This is actually something that I'd say um, some people in the debate field feel this is a completely settled fact and there's nothing left to discuss on it. There's a lot of people that strongly disagree. And I think in that more progressive contemporary movement, the idea is that um, we're wanting to purely appeal to logic and reason. So for example, in, in most debate formats, we give what's called speaker points, which is you know, how were you as both an orator, but logically putting your arguments together? Think of it this way, right? You have a horrible lawyer and he comes in and he's just like, you know, I, I I think I, uh, I think I got a a picture of somebody else doing the crime. And, uh, I found a baggie with like fingerprints and the bloody knife on it. And, uh, it's a convicted serial killer that confessed to it, but I don't know. And you're like, you're sitting here as a juror and you're like, wait, (laughs) hold on. You just exonerated the client. This is the KO. And that's, that's how you like, I'm confused. (laughs) Like, is there something, am I missing something here? Yeah. Um, that person might have the winning argument, right, in the in the case, but they might be the worst lawyer you've ever seen. They just happen to have perfect evidence to prove it true. So in debate, there used to be a, a and there still is, but some places, I'll explain the controversy. Some places used to give an award for the best speaker, and that's usually still given to this day. And then there's who wins in the debate round. But there's a movement that is very critical of our, and there's been studies that have demonstrated this is true, our biases get kind of amped up when we think about how we feel. 
So you've probably mm-hmm. looked at these studies when you show people faces of similar racial identity or gender or smiling and not smiling. Uh, there's a lot of people that might be, say, for example, on the spectrum, and they don't demonstrate the same facially. So when you look at those biases, a lot of what we perceive as confidence or that emotional appeal that's just like, I don't know why, but I just buy it. Um, some people say, look, this is this is all about our largely are built-in biases. Like this isn't an actual skill or something, or it's a separate type. You should go to a speaking competition because debating is supposed to be about pure logic and reasoning. Debate's supposed to get to the heart of the fact oh. of the matter and should expose the truth. So I have found here's the truth in my experience. For a lot of the people that say, I, I don't want anything to be emotional. I want it purely to be rational. And this gets me in some hot water, like we've talked about on Clubhouse and elsewhere in philosophy. Yeah. I think at the heart of all logical arguments, right, it is a void, a lack of meaning, almost if you want to get Lacanian. Like there's nothing there. Like at the core, it's just the, the state of things as they are. But what kind of pushes it forward? What's that will and emotion? Well, that's the emotional component. So for people that are like, I want to be purely rational, what do you mean you want to? Like you are, you aren't, if you're rational, let's just decide if you are, or you aren't. Oh, I so see. Even yeah, the desire yeah. to be rational is a desire stemming from some kind of emotional place. So if you look at a lot of people that work in neuroscience, instead of saying emotions, they'll start describing affects or temperaments. Cause like the word emotion, I just can't deal with that. Yeah. And, and conversely, there are people that, um, cause sometimes you just have parents or college students without expertise judging. And they'll look at the round and just be like, oh, you spoke with confidence. You made eye contact. Like you won in the debate round. You had this. And um, I don't think that's what we want from academic debate. I think we do want something more rich and engaging. How did you deal with their arguments? How did you allocate your time? And, and how did you, you know, show what was actually true? Did you explain why it matters? Did you explain how it affects things? Did you show that this would actually result in not what the other side said? How did you engage with the structure of the debate itself? So there's this push and pull in persuasion and that emotional appeal and really just rational breaking it down and articulating it clearly. I think the secret sauce for the greatest debaters of all time is they're all able to use both and they don't fight each other. They're complementary. So I think that's kind of the, you want to have that emotional appeal and that might be needed, for, especially for certain judges, but you also want to have the purely rational, like, you know, think of the, a demagogue. We don't want debate to be a full of a bunch of demagogues that are like, you know, you're going to hurt everybody and you have no idea what you're saying. And uh, you're, you're, you know, it's just garbage, right? That's not what academic debate is. Yeah. But we do want somebody to say, this is going to systemically hit poor people. Why do poor people actually matter? Why does it matter if there's a cycle of poverty? How can this relate to you? And then you have challenges. You know, you don't, you may know some facts about your judge. You may not. What's their background? What are their biases? What kind of class do they come from? I mean, think of it this way. When you go into contemporary politics and you say there are homeless people, they're suffering. For some people, they're instantly like, well, these people are at the bottom of the level. Like on a Rawlsian level, that's who we should be helping. They're kind of the low, you know, struggling the most. Yeah. And there are other people that go, well, they could dig themselves out of it. You know, these are the people that we should, they've done nothing. They're a drain on our society. Yeah. I'm much more in the former camp, but there are certainly people in that latter camp. Sure. Um, and without appealing to emotion, can you explain why one or the other is actually true? Can you use like demonstrable facts and logical reasoning to show if homeless people are just this, this leech on our society that could absolutely be doing better and they're just kind of lazily not, or has society failed them in some way? Are they struggling with something beyond their control? And we, we owe it as a society to do something to help them. And that's the type of a thing in a debate round, uh, that you want to articulate without just relying on 
trust me and they're evil or they're good. So is it, is it difficult? You know, I, I think about, um, when you do add a bit of confidence and you, you, let's say that you sort of flavor up a really good logical argument with a very convincing style of speech in order to deliver it. I mean, obviously as a human, we, we tend to gravitate perhaps more towards those confident type of speakers because we still have as much as we want to remove ourselves from a a chimp society, we're not all that far removed from, right. you know, going right. towards the most confident of, of the leaders. And so if you, if you are taking a stance, let's say that you are doing a debate, you know, the, the issue that you brought up on, on homelessness is a good one just because it's very split, um, for that, but just using that as an example, um, it, let's say that you are put on the side that you don't agree with. Like, let's say that you're put on the side where you have to argue that, you know, bootstrapping it is the best way to solve the issue even though that's not your your personal belief, does that affect the delivery of that and the confidence of your arguments, knowing that, you know, even as a human, that judge is still going to be somewhat appealed to by the way that the the argument is delivered? So there's different schools of thought on this. And this is what you're going to notice. I'm kind of always saying this, right? Yeah. That there's different, it's, it's not like a, it's like saying, is there one way of doing art, right? You know, should we do more classical or modernist or whatever? There's yeah. different, there's different cams. Um, when you're making an argument, knowing that you, you might need this emotional appeal, it might be necessary. You should always tap into that. Uh, when you get a topic that you don't agree with, you're forced because in most of these debates, remember we were going through the sides, there's, there's multiple formats, right? Yeah. This might be a good time to talk about another one. So in policy debate, you have one topic. And every round, you might be flip-flopping back and forth between are you agreeing or disagreeing. So you have to prepare both sides. Oh, interesting. So for a whole year, you're just going back and forth. Now, think of how applicable this is to the real world, right? If you're, let's say you're going to argue before the Supreme Court, major, con you know, intense trial that's going to shape American policy. You want to know what the other side's doing. You want to yeah. prep against it. So you need to know, and it's advantageous to even know where are your strengths and weaknesses, right? We don't want to go in like this kind of like, just, yeah, you can do it no matter what. It's like, no, 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 we have these drawbacks. And you might even want to lean into them. You might want to talk about them before the other opponent. There are other formats of debate that are different. Um, two of the other ones are called uh, Lincoln-Douglas, and that's one-on-one -on -one debate. You don't have a teammate. Mm. You, you still have the same topic. And classically, these topics were the opposite of policy. They'd be kind of like philosophical ideas or statements of fact. Um, as it's evolved, there's, there's kind of this very history and debate. It's, it's We call it meta debate, right? Debating about debate and how it's evolved. <laughs> Policy is kind of, like I said, the granddaddy. And a lot of these other formats start as reactions. One of the ones, Lincoln Douglas, and had these philosophical questions. But again, you get the same topic. You're going back every three to four months. You might switch it up. And then it evolved to a style, which is now becoming the most popular by far, called public forum. Public forum was designed to be super accessible, maybe lean into a little bit more of the persuasion versus the technical and obscure ways an argument can go, which we might get into a little more later on. Uh, and the topics switch every month to two months, maybe a little more at occasions of the year. But again, you're, you're going back and forth on the same topic. The style of debate I do um, mostly is called parliamentary debate. And our topic, um, I think this one of the reasons I like this one is I think it's the most accessible. We get a different topic every single round. The only reason you debate the same topic is if, if by chance it comes up. Yeah. And yes, when the political climate, certain things might like, we're not going to be talking about the Iraq war anymore. We might talk about Ukraine several times, 
Um, but you don't know what the topic. So imagine this, right? Like you're, you're doing uh, martial arts. Let's say you're doing, I think you're doing jujitsu if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Imagine if you walked in, you're like, okay, today we're doing Taekwondo. <laughs> and you're like, wait a second. Like, like I'm, I'm an expert in jujitsu, not that. And they're yeah. like, you know, the next round you're done with that. And they're like, okay, put your boxing gloves on. Here we go. <laughs> and then afterwards, you know, they drop a foil in your hand. of like, okay, we're going to fence this one out. You'd have to understand all these different skills, the commonalities, and you might take your expertise and try and apply it. Right. There like might a, be something decathlon or something. Exactly. Yeah. So parliamentary debate can be any topic. In that case, you're, you're still put on one of the two sides and you have to argue for or against it. So in that one, it's a little more like, oh, God, I haven't had a year to prep this. What do I do if like I'm put on a gun debate and I yeah. have to argue for a position I don't agree with? Or I'm arguing for legalization or, or usually this one. Actually, there's not a lot of topics about, but say something like abortion. Right. Or certainly the Supreme Court could come up term limits, sure. something like that. And so it's something you feel really strongly about. And there's kind of three ways of handling this. One is to just say, look, I am going to embrace it. I'm going to be the devil's advocate. This is an academic endeavor. And um, you were talking about editing papers and different things, right? Sometimes yeah. you want to be critical of a process just to make sure you don't have a blind spot. And the idea is it's just good. This is just an academic endeavor. And there's two camps, I think, here. One is the debate's a game. This is just a game. So I'm just playing my role, right? We don't criticize an actor. Like, let's say an actor has, like, the worst. They're a rapist in a movie. They're the horrible bad guy. We don't look at them and then say, you are unethical because for a moment you occupied an acting role of a villain. Oh, or a yeah, That's an interesting point. So we yeah. can say somebody's occupying this role because it's needed to have the debate. Um, the second in that same school of thought of like, it's just playing devil's advocate is um, it takes a lot of skill and acuity to do this. And it's giving you transferable life skills. Like in the real world, you might have to advocate for something you don't agree with at work, but you know, you have to do it. Or it might even say, look, uh, you might not want to argue for something, but it's just good to know the other side. Is it, does that translate into, I'm, I'm thinking about the parallels between martial arts, for example, like with sparring with your partners, like mm -hmm. you're a team, your teammates, but you have to spar and you have right. to fight each other. And right. there's going to be times when it gets kind of intense, but you know, the, after you've been doing it for a while, you're, you're pretty good at just like disembodying who it is that you're going. I mean, you, you, you're always making sure that your partner is safe per se, you know, that, that you're not going to injure them. But at the same time, like you guys can be trying to rip each other's heads off right. more, more or less with, you know, with whatever it is that you're doing. And then that bell rings and boom, you're back to being best friends. Like it never even happened in, you know, is there with, with like, as you've seen the progression of people into debate, let's say as they're new, you know, do you see that they sort of get a little heated in, you know, emotion starts to take over in the beginning. And then as they start to progress, they start to realize, okay, I'm not um, actually debating this as a moral position to try to convince the other person personally. It's more of a game that we're, we're trying to play. And then once the gloves come yeah. off, then it's back to normal. That's, it really depends on the individual and it can go, it can go both ways. So remember how I said it kind of exposes who you are. Yeah. What's your nature? Are you somebody who like, you know, every time you think you're right, so there's this formula, I, I use it all the time. Maybe you've heard it in, in our other conversations, we bring this up. If I'm doing X for reason Y, and you're not doing X, does that mean that you don't stand for reason Y? That is, to this day, still like one of my favorite topics to see, not, not, not to see, to, to observe when that gets brought out in individuals. Right. 
And yeah. I think that that's very fascinating to say, and I've been put into that position a lot of times. And obviously, I'll I'll keep the the reasons as to it, you know, out of out of the question. But but basically, you know, it's not that I don't agree with why. I still agree with whatever it is. It's just that you know, my reason X is not the same. Or, or yeah, I mean, I'm going to use this, an easy example just to kind of illustrate this. Like, let's say somebody's really passionate about the the environment. And they take all their, they're like, they're throwing away some stuff and they toss in the recycling without rinsing out their bottles or doing anything like that. And the person next to him is like, do, do you even give a shit about the planet or anything like that? Like <laughs> yeah. you just toss all that stuff in there dirty. They're not going to be able to recycle everything else. And they're like, look, man, if you look at the stats, 95% of recycling doesn't get recycled. And the yeah. amount of energy I'm going to put into using the water and the stuff to wash this out will be negated by the slim chance, you know, so I'm, I'm staying for the environment. If you don't have that level of breakdown, and some people, even when you say that, will be like, I don't believe you, or I can't make that mental stretch. Yeah. So that's really hard, and it exposes kind of uh, who who we are by nature, how we've been raised. Like, that's its own debate, you know, to have. Um, it exposes something about ourselves. When somebody does something I don't agree with, do I assume they're evil? They don't care about things? Now, there are times when people really do disagree, right? Let's say somebody says gun violence is unacceptable, and they're like, look... No matter how many people die, the biggest threats, like a tyrannical government, we have a second amendment, the constitution's a holy document. And somebody else is like, you are doing this on the back of dead children in schools. Yeah. And there, you know, there might be a, a, a disagreement about, oh, we're both trying to do good things, but it might be, no, I actually value freedom over safety. Like I will let people die so we can protect our freedoms. That's okay. And the other person might be like, well, that that's just evil. Like we have to protect people's safety, even if we have to sacrifice some freedoms or some expressions, or maybe I don't even view those freedoms as valuable in a certain sense. So that's where it's really intense, right? But whether it's that that one, you know, we're just doing different X's both for Y, or both of us actually disagree with Y. I mean, think where this is really hard, like with religion. I actually yeah. like, you know, if you're a deeply religious person, I believe this is the son or you know god or whatever like whatever this thing is this is the holy pinnacle everybody should believe in this because y'all are going to go to whatever negative afterlife if you don't so why would you not evangelize why would you, if you truly believe that and then if yeah. you don't that person's just projecting like you know something that that let's say you believe in a different god in a different system and you meet each other on one level we can just play nice we're all just trying to do good but on some core level there is a if you evangelize and get other people to join you're dooming their eternal soul. And, you know, I'm trying to save everybody. You're doing the evil act of taking them away from it. And that's where things can get really, really hard when we actually have differences on that level. So we all know, don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion, like the, the yeah. sort of things of the holidays. Now we're taking an event, we're saying, no, we're just going to talk about those. So for some people, it can make them, and I've seen this with their evolution and debate, it can make them even more like, can you believe like <laughs> after the debate talk, <laughs> picture like after a fight or something, the stuff yeah. you might say about the other person, right? The way they fought or whatever. Now you got, can you believe they said that? Like, I don't even think they stand for, you know, marginalized groups or stand for, I I'll give you a, a not a silly, but a, a tough example. I have a student that that's trans and they, they at points have very much like embraced and spoken about in that in rounds, but sometimes they're just a human and sure. he would just go into rounds. And he was, he was a, a, a trans young man at the time. And in the middle of a round, the other person looks at him and, and he made an argument, if I recall, it was something like, um, look, this is an economic thing. It will affect everybody. You're making an argument that, that like this might affect trans people. 
But an argument that affects the economy affects trans people as well. And trans people often are, are especially hit in the economy. So we're going to prioritize the economic thing because it, it helps the trans people who might be especially there, but everybody. And the other person after the round, I heard him in the hallway. is like, this person is just so transphobic. Like they didn't even care about trans people. And did you hear the judge? The judge picked up their argument. The judge hates trans people too. And it might be in the case that they mm. just didn't hear that argument. But for that other person, they might have felt like, you know, hey, I made a strong argument about how this is going to impact trans individuals. And this is where, you know, obviously, right, we're talking about all sorts of hot button issues here. This <laughs> how it plays out in the real world. Meanwhile, yeah. my students coming out afterwards and they're like, you know, we both heard them making that comment in the hallway and they're like, you know, do I go tell them I'm trans? Like, do I explain to the, and I don't believe the other person was like, do I explain to this uh, person? I yeah. am trans. I'm not hating my, I'm not a self-hating trans person. Like there was nuance to this argument. I was actually making an argument that I think would have helped trans people more like, but that is where it can go in one direction where people become more ideologically. Like I understand this stuff. And if you're not doing what I'm doing, you're doing it wrong. Or they can go much more relaxed. Like some people, it, it can even go too far, I think, where these people lean into like, this is the debate, debate, bro. You all argue anything, man. Like it's yeah. just a game. Like none of this matters. Like who cares about trans people? We're just having fun here. And that, that can be a good, you know, like relax a little bit. Don't take it so serious. Yeah. At the same time, this is, this is and picture how tough this is. You are authentically talking about like issues around poverty and race and yeah. gender and economics and war and like the, the biggest things that impact people's lives. And on one level, you have to go, hey, this is an exercise where young people doing this. On another level, it's like, this is life and death. Yeah. So, so now, now I'll flip it. Just imagine if you're now an 18-year-old or maybe you're a college student. You're like 19, 20. Where's that line? How do you decide? And I think that's where debate is extraordinarily – if it's done right, it's wonderful because it teaches you to be intolerant of things that actually hurt people by understanding what those are but also potentially tolerant and understanding of where some different perspectives and viewpoints might be coming from, where we all might be aiming for X. So I think in the real world, the biggest mm. problems are we're both aiming for Y. How do I convince you my X is correct? To use this, overuse this you know, math analogy we have. And then to really look and say, but when we have a brutal time is when we have different Ys. Like when yeah. you want to eliminate a group of people and I want to help those group of people, now, you know, how do we engage? That's really tough stuff. Um, yeah. And, and, and it depends if you're in a healthy environment. I think you kind of tend to go one way. And if yeah. it's a less healthy environment, you know, th those it, people can walk out of there hating everybody. It, it was almost, you know, it's funny because after going through graduate school, for example, um, I think like if I was trying to deliver a message and I think sort of the ignorance is bliss sort of argument was, you know, before graduate school. I was more polarized on certain scientific issues, for example. And then as going through graduate school, and then you start to learn more arguments and counter arguments for and against whatever position it is or your theory that you're trying to convince. It was almost like I could be more convincing in the fact that I could go deeper into an argument. I could go deeper into the details of an argument. But at the same time, like sometimes the authenticity started to be lost because I very much knew oh, yeah. the the counter argument to everything that I was saying. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the, so I guess to bring it back to, to somewhat of what you were talking about, especially with the polarizing issues. And I just think of like, obviously the way that our government is set up with being either democratic or Republican, that's sort of like the, the ultimate, you know, debate hot button issue thing. But I think of 
I guess I'll just make up a term like the the law of of rounding up, if you will. So if you're like, if you think, oh, this, sure. yeah. you know, if you think about these many things that you believe in as like a conservative viewpoint, well, then you must be fully conservative. So you believe everything. And then, you know, you have some sort of you believe a few of these democratic or, or um, you know, progressive type of viewpoints. Well, then zoop, you you must believe all of them. And so you see like you get grouped into one or the other and sometimes you find yourself saying well hey you know there's certain things that i believe on one side there's certain things i believe on the other but if i have to choose to vote this is the side that i choose it's not because i believe everything that that side stands for but i believe the one the, the things that i do stand for on that side are more important to me than the things that i you know believe on the other side and do you like how does that play into it so now we're getting into what might be interesting for a lot. Like some people really want to hear about the world of academic debate. We've honestly touched the surface, right? We've talked about <laughs> it. But um, this might be where a lot of people resonate because it's it's now talking about, okay, the real world, like our actual lived experiences, what, what actually affects us in a big way. Um, debate plays out in our culture. So there's two things I really kind of beat a drum on. Um One's going to come from the world of like, quote, professional fake wrestling, right? We've been talking about the real stuff. Now we're going to the fake stuff. And the other has to do with a term called competitive framing. Um, so I'm going to go with the competitive framing first, which is if we view things as, are you familiar with this term? Competitive no. framing? Okay. What is, what is it? So, so imagine that we say like, um, let's say uh, there's a massive storm. And in America, there's there's a giant, you know, hurricane Thousands of people are dead, millions, you know, millions of people are displaced, mass homelessness, bad, like, you know, bad, bad, Katrina or worse, right? Um, there's one level that we go, okay, how do we, how do we get, how do we solve this? There are people suffering. That's what most people think of debate, right? What's the best way? Do we relocate them? Do we rebuild in that area? How do we allocate our resources? Mm -hmm. Should that be handled locally or federally? Like, that's the type of stuff, right? But there's another question, which we play out a lot of times, which is, well, there was just a big storm. It's a presidential election cycle. Is that going to favor Democrats or Republicans? So the Republican governor shaped the Democratic president's hand and acknowledge that they're doing well. If they do that, are they doing something good by bringing our country together or bad by potentially increasing their vote? Now let's go to the polls yeah. and see how this affects things. So competitive framing is saying like, how does this make people win or lose? Another example might be like, let's say you're watching a sports game, somebody falls and shatters their ankle. Well, you know, they're in the playoff contention. How's that going to affect things, right? Sure, that that might be something of of consequence, but a human being like just got seriously injured. You know, yeah. that's that's a different level. I think a lot of times we play into this competitive framing. I think that's what happens with the Democrats and Republicans, and like the the kind of gamesmanship, and as if that's the thing that matters. So this in this, is, this is what got me in trouble in graduate school. And I think I told you about this in, in my bioethics course, which was the only B that I ended up getting in graduate school, you know, which was, uh, you had to, we were, we were debating about consequentialists versus non-consequentialist consequentialists point of views. And basically, so like a consequentialist point of view is essentially like whether or not something is ethical depends on the consequence of whatever it is. And so if you're administering a drug trial and some people, uh, you know, pass away during the drug trial, no matter what happens, it, it, like the consequences don't justify right. the means. Whereas like in a non-consequential type of type of viewpoint, it, the, the outcome of it doesn't necessarily matter. So it doesn't matter whether the drug helped people in the long run or not. People are dying. So it's bad. 
right? And so we we took on we took on uh, a debate issue, which uh, you know every bioethics course does a, a similar thing where they go into Tuskegee, like that, and then they go right. in, you know with the, with like that, and then they talk about the uh, the Nazi research, um, of course, that went on during the during the the war, and it was one of the questions was with Nazi research do like from a consequentialist or a non-consequentialist point of view, how would you argue for or against the issue? And, and one of the things that I put was that, you know, from a consequentialist point of view, not that I'm taking any sort of side on it, but you could say, you know, we've learned about hypothermia research. We learned a lot about hyperthermia research. We learned a lot about different things because surprisingly it was documented pretty well and pretty rigidly, obviously under dire conditions. Um, you know, and so from a consequentialist point of view, there were things that we learned along the way. And so a consequentialist by definition couldn't completely object to it. They would have their own personal objections, but they couldn't completely object to it. Whereas a non-consequentialist would say, well, it doesn't matter. Look at all the deaths that occurred during the, the Nazi regime. And of course it's bad. And then I ended up getting dinged because, you know, I came back and said, well, you support Nazi research. I said, I, I don't support Nazi research. I'm just saying from a definition standpoint, a consequentialist can't completely argue against it because there were things that we learned along the way. And then yeah. they said, well, it doesn't matter. It's Nazi research. It was so bad that either way, both parties shouldn't agree. And I was like, Wait a minute, you know, something's not right here. <laughs> so there, there's there's a lot going on in that example, right? So there's there's like the deontological framework, that Kantian idea of we should have universal rules and maxims and always file follow those and only set rules we should always apply to. And then there's that like, you know, uh that utilitarian framework that like what what's happening, what are the results, how does this affect sentient beings? It's not just like you were saying with this, this, let's say you have a, a horrible experiment, right? Um, we can go Nazis or anything else. There's just a horribly designed experiment and all the participants suffer, but you come up with something incredibly powerful. Like a great example is, is uh, I believe it's Henrietta Lex, like the, the immortal cells. If you remember, everybody's mm. talked about that is it's this black woman whose cells were used. And there was a big debate about like whether they were taken consensually. It doesn't matter that, you know, she's a black woman, not given credit. There's a lot of conversation around this. So let's say that like you have some sort of cellular mutation and it's really influential in helping fight cancer, but it's just like taken without your consent and you're not given any compensation. And uh, in fact, let's say it exposes your genetic profile to the world in some way that people start commenting on you and it feels very like, you know, whoa, like all of a sudden yeah. I'm everywhere. Um, any of these examples, it's not just looking at like what was the harm done to the individual and what was the benefit done. But what happens if we live in a society where that sort of thing is normalized? And yeah. that's where this stuff can have multiple le levels. So if we're like, okay, it was worth it this time to violate a person's privacy and rights. And, and in a lot of times, like I'm pretty tempted. It's hard to argue against the amount of benefit that's come from, from you know, especially some of these softer, like let's just say taking a, a cell sample without permission. But that's also a big deal. What happens if we live in a society where we know that doctors are at least quite capable of, and we don't do much if they take a cell sample without permission? Mm. Well, that creates a kind of society without accountability. Do people trust the medical apparatus? So it's not as simple as like, did this solve more cancer or, or cause it or how much did it hurt that person? It's also what what are the long-term societal and systemic effects? So in, in the Nazi scientists, if we, if we like go, Hey, these Nazis were great at documenting these different things. Um, 
in a very real sense, that's playing out right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was a few years ago saying somebody was a Nazi was like, whoa, that's a, that's a, like, especially if they're self-avowed. Now we got quasi self-avowed Nazis. They're like, hey, maybe they, sh- they can run for office and why shouldn't they? And that's just their political, you know. So it's, it's, these things are nuanced, but I do think when it comes to moral framing, like we said, or competitive framing or any of this, having a good debate about that, like that is somewhere where academic debate goes very well. We call these framing debates. So not just like, how do we decide the issue? How do we, and this is where it gets kind of meta, it might feel like head pop, it might feel obvious. How do we decide how we decide who won today's debate? Now let's have a debate about how the judge should evaluate and think about it. So I want to use a consequentialist framework. It's the only one we can calculate. No, because there's infinite possible futures and you destroy all other possible futures whenever you take any road and you can't calculate that. So let's just use a deontological one. We're going to have a set of norms and rules that we think should be, and we're just going to try and enforce that right ethically. And, and then the other person says, well, no, if you do that, like you can do abhorrent things in the real world because you're not looking at the actual effects. And so you have a whole debate within the debate about how to judge the debate and it can get more and more. It's like a inception going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can, you can have honestly debate. But you can around see it like even in the real world play out, especially in education, right? You have to pick what should be and should not be argued for. Oh yeah. And, and, and picture it like it's, it's the argument right now we see playing out in society. So I can tell you. If if my opinions here and as somebody's been coaching along, not everything is great to discuss. Not for the reason that like we should censor people, um, but for a much more pretty reason. Because uh, as much as you look like a lovely, young, healthy individual, you're also going to die. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> like a lot of us, like let's just sit in our mortality, right? And we don't have infinite time. So what yeah. we choose to talk about, what we choose to engage in, that's not a neutral position. So when people say like, like there's no debate, we shouldn't have, everything should be discussed. Okay. But how much time and what should we choose to discuss? So let's say, and, and what are the effects of having a discussion in a certain way? And that's the, the game that people, this is where I, I love one thing about debate is it helped expose to me. What's the game nobody's talking about? So watch this, ready? I'm going to say that same scenario in a couple different ways. Yeah. Um, were Nazi scientists particularly effective at documenting and doing successful research? Let's have that discussion. Or uh, is it acceptable that the Nazi regime did quality science? Like, can we acknowledge that? Or uh, is it violating somebody's rights for them to use the quality research that Nazis did? Or mm. can you see how these like these yeah. discussions start shifting? And by the end of this like little game, you might be on like. Why can't we do what the Nazis did? It yielded such great research. Maybe it was worth it after all. And let's just have a discussion about authoritarianism and see like, you know, why were the Nazis so bad? And that's that's where it can be this game of telephone where we yeah. shift. Have you heard this term, the Overton window? Uh, I've heard the term, but it's been a while. With, so so it's like, what's, what's acceptable to discuss in society? Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. right, right. If a politician came out and said something like um, a few years ago, I'm for child marriage. I think like, you know, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds should be able to get married, have intercourse, like bear a child. I think that's completely normal. For a lot of like different points in in American history, maybe that would have been, but it's completely unacceptable. Like you can't say that. If you say that, society will just look and be like, that's not like we can debate about how taxation should work, wealth distribution, maybe even abortion. But like having eight-year-olds get married, that's just morally abhorrent. Yeah. That's going on right now. They're, they're, you know, child, child labor. 
is back on the table. I don't know if you know about this. In the real world, there are states right now pushing for child labor laws. I mean, within one of those laws, it even says if you're employing a child and they die on a factory floor, you're not liable because you're providing them with education. So if an adult <laughs> worker dies, that's there. But if a child, yeah, it sounds like insane, right? Yeah. And so an Overton window is like, how far can you push things? And a lot of times what de- debates, quote unquote, are used for is testing how far you can shift an Overton window. Hmm. How far? Yeah. And so, so I'm going to, I mean, we're, you're okay with controversy today? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're not taking positions okay. on it. <laughs> it's like storming a captable. Like, is that a problem? Like, are you allowed to like, you know, burst into a government building, take out windows and beat police? Like, is that acceptable? Is that not acceptable? Can we like try and stop it? Can we call for the execution after Kennedy was out? Right. We passed all these laws against calling for the execution of a president or a sitting person. If you said something soft, like when I was raised as a kid, I don't know if you ever heard this. Like it's something that's almost not in our, our lexicon anymore. I remember my parents are people saying like, you can't joke about killing a president. Like you uh, literally yeah. can't. It's both against the law. It's morally reprehensible. Now yeah. we have politicians that are calling for the execution on Twitter of the other side. Yeah, that yeah, Overton yeah. window has shifted so much. Like what's acceptable? What's just okay? And so the the challenge is what we choose to talk about and the way we choose to talk about it does have an impact. And that's when like, you know, when people start coming after like CRT and these different things that they usually don't understand. A lot of times what it's saying is let's not just look at like the thing we're talking about, but the way we're talking about it, why we're talking about it, how we're talking about it. Let's look at what the actual effects are. So as part of, as part of becoming, you know, delivering the most, um, I guess the most convincing argument is since you're trying to convince a certain person and that person themselves are going to have their own subjective Overton window, right? What they are and what they're not willing to talk about. Is it, you know, is part of it trying to find right where that line is so that way you can go, you, you know, you can butt oh, up yeah. against it to be the most convincing, but not so far that now you've you've gone into the realm of, you know, this person is going to go into things that I don't want them to even bring up, regardless of the side that they're that they are on. So this- I imagine like the closer you get to it, the more convincing something can be because it strikes more emotion. But at the same time. Or maybe that's not the case. Maybe, I'm, maybe I, I don't know if it has that effect, but I, I will say very much. So remember, this stuff does come full circle, right? Remember how we were talking about so much of debating comes down to judging, right? It's just like in politics, it comes down to the voters. And so you were talking a moment ago about, um, you know, where is the shifting? How does this appeal to the judge? It goes back to when judges have these paradigms. So some judges will say, and and remember how I said debate usually only gets in the news when something's going weird. Um, I don't know if you know this or it's just chance that we happen to record this week, but debate's been in the news again. Um, an article has been surfing around. So if you're in the debate community, it's been popping up. And it's talking about certain judges and their paradigms that say things about their stances on capitalism or workers' rights or gender identity or the roles of women or... Um, and the question is, on the one level, there's this idea as a, of a debater. Do I want to appeal to the judge? This is this is something, you know, we're going in a lot of directions, but to go, again, this stuff connects. Or do I want to take an actual moral stand as a person? Mm. Like, I would tell my debaters, if they ever got, once there was a debate topic that I did not like, it was which uh, sexism is a bigger problem than racism or vice versa. That's just a bad debate to have in general because yeah. it frames them as if they're in opposition. And then you're asking a kid in 20 minutes of prep to figure out how to articulate clearly to society. And then there's a the whole problem of, of what about the positioning of a judge? Like, you know, w- would a black male judge have to decide that, you know, 
women don't suffer as bad as racial minorities or would a, a white woman have to decide like about the suffering of, of, you know, say indigenous peoples. It, it's, it's putting everything yeah. in a very strange framing. Now, maybe that's a good debate to have. Maybe it's not. I'd err on the side of if there's infinite topics, because remember this is infinite. Yeah. We're all going to die. Life is finite. That's just kind of probably not the greatest topic to ask somebody to do. Put yeah. these in opposition, ask us to compare. There might be more nuance to it. There might be a better way of asking it. So when people get these, these um, strong paradigms, some there's a term we call adaptation and it's, it's very self-explanatory, right? Do I change the way I argue in front of my judge? Well, we all kind of do this. So if you get a parent who's never judged debate before versus a college kid, whose description on how he likes to judge is 30 pages long, including his personal thoughts on <laughs> consequentialism versus like deontology, which one he evaluates to. And, and, you know, I don't want you to throw out any Wittgenstein cause that guy's an old cranky bastard. And then they're, they're referencing specific, like I haven't read a lot of Fanon, but if you throw out some Fanon, I can follow. I'm just creating a picture and I know exactly like, <laughs> right. And you get, you, you're getting this person and, and do you adapt to it? You get people in their bios that will say very debate bro stuff. Yo, if you can bring, I remember this once when I had a kid who had this round, it's like, yo, if you can give me five, quotes from like WWE stars from the 80s, I'll give you the win. Or one judge jokingly said like, there's a term called topicality, right? Are you actually debating the topic at hand? So yeah. think of the worst traits of politicians like pivot, I won't answer. We're not supposed to do that in debate, right? In general, I think that's a pretty agreed upon, like you're supposed to figure out what you're talking about and stick to it instead of just randomly bringing something up. So this one judge said, if you can call it tropicality instead and say it in the round, you know, I'll give you bonus, I'll, I'll quote, give you bonus points or evaluate <laughs> you higher. And so when you get somebody like that, who's making a joke, maybe it's funny and lighthearted, but maybe they're also just like a debate bro who's too cool. And they want you just to do the weirdest, most obnoxious thing because they yeah. think that'd be really cool because they were a high school kid a year ago. Now they're in a position of power and they want to, and, and it's very tough. Do you adapt to that? Do you try and be a bit of a jerk? Do you start looking up wrestler quotes from the 80s? Yeah. Like, you know, do you randomly drop tropicality in the round so it will sound cool and you'll talk about pineapples or something? Like, it's, it's, these are edge cases, but it is part of the art of it. Now, there's the counter argument that you should just kind of master a skill, debate the way you want, and deliver that. And I think, again, I think the truth can be a little bit in the middle, but I lean towards you should really master what you know extremely well and be able to do that in such a way that it's so good, it can appeal to a very broad swath of people. The best debaters I know have done that. There are some very good teams mm -hmm. that are very good at adaptation, but I'd say really mastering your ability to speak. So think of like the politician that goes in front of like the people hate, right? The one that goes in front of their, I mean, Nowadays, it's almost everybody, but they go in front of their fundraisers or they're speaking at some, you know, more uh, business conference and they're like, we're going to lower your taxes. We're going to get workers compensation down. Then they go to a factory next week in front of a bunch of workers and they're like, we will, you know, increase your salary and <laughs> yeah. do all this stuff and not let them push you around. I mean, that's great, right? That's that, that smarmy debate skill of I can say anything to anybody, but it's useful. It's useful. Say you're trying to make a real difference. Say you're trying to make a pitch in the rural South about why homelessness matters. And then you're trying to go to like Denver right now that's suffering from mass homelessness. It's going to be a different pitch, but in both yeah. cases you might have to argue. So there's, there's this kind of line that you walk in. Now I'm talking about the real world, both the academic world, when we're engaging in debate, how much do we switch and how much do we stand for something? And I think the secret is know the lines you won't cross. I would never go, what, what I usually tell my kids is personally, I don't think we should ever compare a person's humanity. 
Yeah. Or say like somebody doesn't value. If if I'm ever pushed into a debate where I'm asked to say what type of a person is better, quote unquote, or things like that, not going to do it. If I'm asked to to argue for something that I think will unquestionably harm a lot of people, especially people without the power to fight back, even if it's in a theoretical debate round, what I say is be creative and, and don't do it. So I'm I'm against like, you know, religious schools, right? I'm a teacher. I work in schools. I don't think having these schools and indoctrinate kids in a religion like you know if if somebody's religious and listening right now they might be like hey i want my kid to learn religion in school okay but what if it wasn't your religion like what if yeah, i put your kid yeah. in a school and i'm like oh i want them they're gonna learn about uh i don't know confucianism exclusively or they're only gonna learn about judaism like a lot of people would go well hell no so i i like the separation of church and state i like the idea that our educational system but i had a topic once that said religion ought be taught in all schools yeah all schools should be religious schools and I started that round in like almost having a panic attack because I felt like I, I was already teaching at the time. I was just <laughs> yeah. doing my college debate career. I'm like, how do I how do I argue for this? And this is early on. Like now it might be a little easier. Um, and I just looked at my partner at the time and he's like, okay, well, let's let's think about arguments for religious schools. I'm like, I, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just not. Like, even even I'm not worried about getting canceled or something else. I'm just like, that's that's not somewhere I feel comfortable going ethically. I'd rather lose the round than yeah. sit here and do that. So what I did was I sat there. I'm like, wait a second. You know the way around this. And that is think about the topic and find a way you can agree with your ethics. So instead, what I said is when we're teaching about history or social studies, we should have a cross-cultural religious analysis of teaching about the individuals along with their religious beliefs so we can understand, have some tolerance and understanding. So we don't just learn about like, you know, indigenous peoples and here's their culture. What was their religion? What was their belief system? What were the, what are the nuances and differences of these people um, where we don't just say like, you know, certain facts and I'm, I'm fine. In fact, I think it's a great thing to learn about different people's religious beliefs and ideals or lack thereof. Like a lot of our founding fathers were atheists. What were yeah. their thoughts about life? Did they just think, oh yeah, there's no God, nothing matters? I mean, that just doesn't, you know, you don't look at Jefferson and say like, oh, that's a guy who doesn't care about anything, right? Yeah. You know, so um, when I argue it that way, I can stand by that. I have no problem with that. I, I'm completely down with that. I think we should be able to talk about that. So I had to take the topic and say, how can I, resonate with this without crossing my line at the same time it's a topic that i don't like i don't like arguing for that there's a bunch of other teams that probably did just argue for straight up religious schools and uh i think that's that's another way of engaging with that so like i said it gets into a lot of nuance but when you have topics you don't agree with to take it outside of this like uh competitive framing is okay what actually instead of just this is a game between two people how do i win yeah there's a world how does that matter it's almost like I just, you know, I being in that the academic world, I just imagine like for some of the topics, you'd almost have to like bar off the the gymnasium or whatever it is that you are just debating and say like this is debate club. Like we have to pick polarizing arguments. That's what debate is all about. Like, <laughs> you know, you can see how it can like spiral out of control um, if like, you know, given in if the audio, you know, stripped oh, of yeah. the context is put out there. I mean, that's could be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I tell a lot of people and, and ready for the clip going there. And I say this all the time. Uh, you know, this is just silly one, but it's one I actually use in teaching. I go, okay, look, there's a lot of people that say Hitler was the greatest, most influential leader in all of history. And I'm not clip. one of them. I found him morally <laughs> repugnant. Exactly. Right. And then you take that in isolation, but there's a bigger thing of like, what if I have a debate round where I have to argue about say, Something, uh, this is why we usually don't have topics like this, but like, let's say I did get that racism versus sexism round. 
and I don't want to lose this tournament. Like this really matters to me. So I go in there and I say one's, one's a bigger issue than the other. Right. Um, and that clip gets out a lot of influential people, people that want to go into politics, lawyers. I mean, frankly, and this is its own meta issue. We haven't even talked about wealthier, more privileged kids that can afford to do this. You know, these are people that know they have a career. If you're on camera, especially at the college level, right? If you're caught on camera and recorded making some like very incendiary comments, or maybe it's even a passionate position, but like later on, you want to go into politics. You have to be like, whoa, there's a real fear now that wasn't there before about people getting recorded. Yeah, that's a real thing. And that's where, um, it, again, this is where, I don't know if you want to go here. It's a very, this is where debate gets it's <laughs> spicy, I guess, and interesting, <laughs> controversial. There's a whole theory of debate that says, Hey, asking me to debate this topic is wrong. In oh. fact, I'm going to refuse to talk about this topic. And I'm going to say the team that best deconstructs the, uh, patriarchal role of debate it should win today. So I'm going to tell you why the topic of comparing sexism and racism is like a patriarchal game. And uh, I'm embracing a feminist ideology by refusing to engage. And the judge should vote for me because I'm bringing up this key issue. And that's a more, that's a more real issue in this round. We should vote for whoever deconstructs this patriarchal rating of everything and trying to put one issue above another yeah. and embrace it. And then I read some scholarship and some literature. Some people say like, this is the death of debate. A lot of times this is called ready for it. It's called a critique yeah. <laughs> and people, people start hearing that, you know, CK a lot of times we say from the Germanic K critique, but yeah. um, they hear that and, and some people really freak out and, yeah. Um, this is where the biggest controversy and debate has come up for the last several years is what happens when a team says either this topic is a problem, so I should win by bringing up another issue or reject topics entirely or ready for this meta level debate itself has a problem and I'm going to solve it right now. And that's bigger than anything in this round. Cause if I can fix what we're doing, so imagine yeah. going to a jujitsu round, right? Uh, and the person's geez. like, yeah. hold on, you know, we're not allowed to do like fish hooks. We can't grab the groin. There's certain things we can't do. We can't do eye gouges. Those would be effective, right? In a lot of cases, but we can't do it. But there's this one hold. I- I'm making something hypothetical. There's one hold that's very bad. Now stop this round. I should win because I'm going to stop more injuries by like arguing about this one thing yeah. than any little game we're going to play in wrestling. I'm going to make all of jujitsu better right now. You'd be like what, you know, on some level that would feel like a betrayal, right? Of jujitsu. Right. But when we're having a game talking about what's right and you want to talk about something r- that, that might be right, that will change the game. Yeah. Is that appropriate or not? And that's where debate can get confusing or interesting. Or some people say like it's transcending and getting better. Other yeah. people say it has, you know, Imagine if you're doing that, you can go and try and find the most obscure, weird idea that nobody will see coming, master it, and then every single debate round, you can always use the same argument because you go, debate has this problem. So there, that's where it can get this meta of, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you, debate has these problems, but if you bring this up every single round, that's unfair. And now the question is, what's more important to have a fair playing ground where I could anticipate your argument or to address this real systemic problem? And can you imagine the current political climate, the type of people that how they feel about that? Like, <laughs> oh, I can like, just there's extrapolate. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a systemic issue right here and inequity. And let's call this out and fix it. And the other side's like, you know, what are you trying to do? Like cancel the debate community? Like, come on, facts are facts and just roll with it and deal with it. And 
right now there, that's there's there's been a, a paper circulating around. I haven't seen as many people since Project Debate or de- academic debate just is in the news, right? I mean, do yeah. you know the current reigning national champion? No. Can you name the top five schools? No, I, I oh. would I would list some Ivy Leaguers just to throw them out, but that's right. about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, and and I'd say seventy percent of people in debate can't yeah. even name who's the champion in the other formats. They might not even be able to name who's their own. So when debate hits news, like I said, it's, it's never because somebody, we all know it. it's this thing in the back of our mind. It's the largest interscholastic thing going on, but we don't, we don't know who's who, you know? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's almost like, uh, it's almost like the future of debate. They're just going to, you know, just for safety reasons, they're just going to remove, it's going to be completely de-identified. It's just going to be voices and some sort of like blank AI character. And that's oh, just going to be it. You know, I, th- there's a certain move that I don't like. So I actually think a, a critical part of debate. So COVID exposed this. We moved online. So we're talking, we're doing this interview right online. Yeah. Um, think of debate in terms of super spreaders. Let's take kids from across the country put them into small rooms where it's like, you know, six to eight people in a room. Each time you switch with partners from all over the U S and you're speaking loud and fast and projecting a lot of airflow. Like, you know, of course we were instantly shut. Everybody was shut down COVID, but even when things start to ramp up for some, it's like, Whoa, can we go back in person? So as it shifted online, uh, some places found things like, Hey, less tall people are winning more often. Women are more likely to win. They're getting higher speaker awards. So they looked and said, hey, some of these systemic issues that historically had been there, they seem to be mitigated when we're not standing next to each other in a room. Like right now, you know, as we're interviewing, I don't know which of us is taller. You know what I mean? Like, you know, who's got larger musculature? It's kind of hard to tell right now, right? So we'd have to like, you know, for in person, that kind of stuff stands out more. Um, Like I mentioned, this whole role, should we evaluate speaking? So I can envision a future where there's like almost rapid fire correspondence debate that's by text. So you don't know the person's identity at all. It's just, you know, you read the text. But so many people, what we also found during debate, uh, shifting online during COVID was people don't like that. They Mm, want to be in person. They want the human interaction. So I actually think, and I think there's a lot of coaches and other people that say this, the human interaction, those skills are, this might be a hot take for, for some people, but I think they're as or more important or at least equal to how important the thinking and the reasoning is being able to connect with another person to actually express, to physically be there, um, to, to actually deliver effectively. I mean, I think it was a boy was Aristotle or Socrates. I'm, I'm blanking myself, but they said that, you know, if you brought an orator and a doctor into an arena and they both examined a person and pronounced, you know, what is the actual solution to this? The, almost everybody in the arena would pick whatever the orator said because the orator knows the art of convincing everybody they're right. So even if they have no idea, they're randomly like, give him prune juice and seven figs. And the other guy (laughs) is like, you know, this is swelling. Like we need to lance this and get the infection out. And we know there's, you know, herbs, whatever back then they would have used that helped treat this. Everybody'd be looking like, you know, what's this scrub over here? And then he looks at him. He's like, you want to cut him open? Are you insane? He's like, yeah, go with the other guy. He's going to give him some fig juice. Right. Um, and, and I think in the real world, like you're in your field, how much FUD and garbage and, and, you know, BS are you seeing people pick up from social media, from, you know, companies advertising? Oh yeah. Right. So well, we- I, I mean, you notice it when, it, as long as the person standing there has a six pack and they can tell you that some, you know, green bean <laughs> coffee juice drink smoothie 
is like the secret to creating this. And, you know, and of course, everything you see now is the new elixir to life and health and well-being. And if you sit, you know, if you sit in a bucket of ice for a couple of minutes, you know, you're going to unlock futures yeah, that have we never talked about this one before. before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. And like, and, and if you take a step back and I, I think I told you about it sometimes is like, it's often hard to be convincing when you take a I don't want to say a realistic approach, but if you take an unbiased approach and you say, listen, there's pros and there's cons to every medical thing. This is why a lot of medical research becomes difficult is because you solve one issue and now you create a comorbidity of something else. And like you use the ice bucket thing, for example, you sit in an ice bath, you reduce a bunch of inflammation, but you also get a massive vasoconstriction and a huge increase in, in circulating catecholamines, which can be bad for some people. And it's like, suddenly that argument is not convincing, even though, it's the truth and it might be delivered by someone who, you know, quote, has more background understanding and knowledge of the mechanisms that go into it. And that was what has always frustrated me sometimes about the fitness community is that if you take some 19 year old, 20 year old that is, you know, six, 5% body fat and they're doing some crazy weird thing on a pull up bar and they have a oiled up six pack and they say anything, most individuals like tend to or at least to to convince a crowd to come buy whatever product it is regardless of what it is tends to do pretty well right but if you take a very knowledgeable individual and they lays out the pros and the cons and here's the mechanisms of how something works even though you can get more out of it i think sometimes it's more difficult to understand and then mm. it becomes less convincing even though it should be more convincing you know yeah, I think I think this is the one of the problems that we're facing, which is in the real world when we're trying to have arguments or disagreements or, or make persuasive statements, uh, the way you say it really matters. So right now you hear a lot of people like there's a whole profession I just found out called medical messaging, and you can like study this in school and have it be you know it's not just a small thing. I don't know if, if you had to do this, but they talk about how you communicate to the patient, how do you mm, like handle yeah. them. I mean, just like this is beyond bedside manner. This is think how important this was under COVID. Yeah, right. We both didn't know what this disease was. It's evolving in real time. We're having to like change our position as we learn about new details around this this global pandemic how lethal is it what are the ways of treatment what are the symptoms and that the literal disease is evolving right so there's a lot of people out there that go oh these doctors have no idea what they're talking <laughs> about like he said one thing he said a different thing this week like don't mask mask like and now we can't trust doctors yeah and and if that person can say that convincingly enough it's going to bring a lot of people on board and with the new distributed information models and modalities we're using all of this podcast and YouTube yeah. and all these different things, everybody's equally an expert now. Yeah. Well, and, that's and what I noticed, you know, yeah. with the, with the, um, what's it trying to say? But basically like, especially because I do a lot of those like 15 second to 30 second videos that I put on Instagram or whatever, uh, or TikTok, and that just have some like one singular scientific fact and like, you make it kind of cool and sexy and you put some videos on there and suddenly like it's cool. Like I just made one about sneezing or whatever. And like just to <laughs> teach the technical term of sternutation of sneezing and like why do you close your eyes? You know, like to go through the pathway is not a very cool thing to do. But if you make it in a 30 I'm have to watch show, this video, by the way. Like yeah, I want to know you, why I close your eyes. I've always wondered that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you make like a, a 30 second clip, bam, and then put some videos and then I had my dog sneezing. Like it's suddenly like some of the stuff starts to become cool because you're marketing it in a way. And right. I think that's something that we very much toe the line in in academics you see a lot of times because in papers, it is interesting to see different reviewers and stuff and, and how they handle it. And I, I find myself at fault of this sometimes where 
I'm in the camp of saying these are the data that we recorded and they suggest that this might be a cure or they suggest that this might reduce the incidence of a certain disease of occurring, right? And so if like right. we're trying to remove, let's say, CO2 from a person's body and we can say that, you know, changing, you know, giving them a certain drug might reduce the incidence of or, or these data suggest that administration of this drug may reduce the incidence of retaining CO2 in this certain population. But on the flip side, you come back and you could say the exact same statement and you can say this drug removes CO2 and saves people. And which one's right. more convincing? Of course, the second one's more convincing. Right. And I think like sometimes you can find yourself in a deep, dark rabbit hole if that's what you, you, you know, you start to go for only that information. But I, I also see on the flip side, it's a heck of a lot more cool to say this, you know, if X, then Y. Right. It's, 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 it's a real challenge because a lot of times I find, so if you can learn to do this effectively, it's, a, it's an incredibly potent tool in debate um, to say, look, everybody's going to make a lot of hyperbolic claims here, yeah. but you know, those aren't true. Now let me be the realist in the round and talk to you about what's really going on. This isn't going to cause nuclear war. This isn't going to conversely like destroy, you know, a nation state's economy, but it's going to marginally hit the middle class. And let's talk about why like this marginal tax change will disproportionately hit like middle class urbanites who are struggling to buy their first home. Why does it matter if they do or don't buy their first home? There are people that are incredibly potent at making that convincing and powerful. Um, and that's that's kind of like their own little superpower. That's their ability. Then there are other people that know, like they're going to make everything nuclear war. And that used to be a running kind of joke and meme in debate, right? <laughs> like you're going to lower the economy five percent, military asymmetry, boom, nuclear war. Like you know, you're going to cause racial tension. Racial tension leads to life, dissolved in a country, free range nukes, boom, nuclear war. Like yeah. everything's going to end up in nuclear war. We can find a way to get there. Um, and I think that is one of the big challenges that an orator, a speaker, a debater has is how do I both speak the truth, make it make sense and be digestible, but make it be persuasive. So we have like specific techniques. So kind of like in medicine, right? There's there's probably all this nuance. Like you're talking about like sneezing. You go down these different steps and I'm sure if there's uncontrollable sneezing, there's probably a medication or something you can do to help. There might be a, a short-term thing you can do. Like I remember when sneezing, I don't know if this is a myth or not. You can tell me. Um, but like, you know, I said, look up at a bright light and you'll be less likely to sneeze. And I remember yeah. at one point I was, I was actually not doing so well. I just sneeze. sneeze. <laughs> right. Or one or the other, right. I yeah. can't remember which it is, but, uh, but there was some techniques I tried like that and it, it was really effective. And I've, you know, I know your expertise is breathing. I do a lot of breathing training with my debaters and a lot of my debaters hate it. It feels like this pseudo. I remember one kid like literally quit afterwards. He's like the coach spent an entire lesson, not even joking, entire lesson telling me he had this secret that would help me do better in all my debate rounds and my tests and everything. I just went over some like basic breathing visualization, like regulation of, you know, stuff that stuff that everything from snipers to martial artists learn, right? Because it actually does work. But to them, it didn't feel that way. I wasn't effective. And and here's the example. I wasn't effective at persuading them that this was a cool, exciting thing, even though I tried. And so that's a lot of times what I find is, is when it comes to these things about describing facts, a fact doesn't matter at all. It just is. Yeah. Like, let's say, I don't know, being on podcasts, like causing 97% cancer rate, right? Okay, cool. We're both getting you know, cancer from this <laughs> podcast, right? All right. Life's over. You know, there's so many things that have an effect and people don't care. 
that yeah. a lot of times in debate, one thing we really stress on, and, and I heard one other coach say this line and I liked it. Debate is all about accessing impacts and controlling who gets access to why something matters. An impact in debate jargon is like why it matters in the real world. Because even if it's true, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe this will like lower GDP by 20%. But you know what? Lowering G- GDP by 20% like really doesn't matter because we can do this to mitigate it or oh, other countries yeah. will step in or something. Like it doesn't matter as much as you say, or it doesn't matter in a certain way. 20% GDP probably would. But you know, there's other things that yeah. might not. Like this will lower if, if we... I remember it's the diabetes. Talking- it's sort of like the diabetes thing. Like, you know, if you eat a bunch of sugar, there's a likelihood that you're going to develop diabetes and die. But like, it's so far down the road of like the person has to become diabetic first, and then the diabetes is going to increase the risk of 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 death from cardiovascular disease. And most people, if you tell them that, like, the the threat of death does right. not even equate to being a problem for them. Like, right. Whatever. Yeah. Like, like one thing I found very effective. It's kind of funny. Is I remember a while ago. A guy, I got to look up what it was, but they found that one of the most effective ways to get men, I think it was smoking or something else to quit doing or, or drink here, some unhealthy behavior was to show that it causes uh, impotence and yeah. lack of sexual performance. <laughs> I was going to say erectile dysfunction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, I can like that. That could hit me now. That's not like, I'm not going to die. So that's one of the problems is, is a lot of times if you're like, this will make you die. That's where you hear people with smoking and other stuff. Like, yeah, everything gives me cancer. I don't care. Yeah. So, so making somebody care about something is actually really hard. And I think that's where it gets into, you remember how I said there's like two words I like to hit on really hardcore, right? One's this competitive framing, making it all a game about who wins, not about the issue. The other is kayfabe. And this is a term that comes from, of all places, like fake professional wrestling. Yeah. So like if, if you ask anybody, like, is this, you know, professional wrestling or fake wrestling? Is it an act? Anybody who's really into it, they know it's scripted. They know they're like, you know what I mean? Like they yeah. know this is an act. They know it's not real drama. But on the other hand, you know how they'll like never acknowledge that they'll be yeah. like they're real performers or oh my god can you believe this who would have guessed <laughs> it? you know like it, it's like oh I remember the other day in, in somebody's bio they, they were talking about how this guy was like a 10 time champion like that was a big deal like this is like winning the Olympics like oh my god this guy got the WWE belt he's the best wrestler in the world and and yeah. I was just chuckling I'm like wait do you you know are you are you saying like that's fun because that's a story or are you thinking he's like the best wrestler and like of course he's the best wrestler and yeah. and the person was putting on an act and the only rule is we're all going to come in and we're going to play a game because the game is more fun if we pretend that it's yeah. real the only sin is to break it. And I think a lot of times, like I'm going to give you a, a ready, a controversial one for your field, uh, the reproducibility problem. Yeah. What, what did they say? There was that study that came out a while ago. I think it was like 79, 87. I don't know. It was in, in, in the high 70s, to 80% of studies that came around diet. So not, not some things, not, we're not talking math or physics, but when it's just, is this food good, et cetera, almost all studies can be reproduced. So famously, yeah. like there's these ones around chocolate and you get chocolates, good, bad, good, bad, you know, sugar, alcohol, any level of consumption. Yeah. And a lot of these studies, if you do them again, there's no statistical significant correlation between the first study and the second study. Sure. There's this huge reproducibility problem, and especially if we wait seven years. I heard that, that that's a whole nother thing. When they took the studies from seven years ago, it was insane how few could be reproduced. Sometimes the opposite results would come out. Yeah. And, and so, um, a lot of times I think what we do is we pick these things or fields of studies or political parties or ideologies and we pretend that they're very serious when really what we're just saying is this is our taste. This is our aesthetic. 
This is the thing we like, and we're going to go with that. And we're going to go with that because of whatever reason. So I'm not like, you know, as I'm saying this about reproducibility, some people probably hear that and it's like, oh, he's one of those anti-science guys. <laughs> like it's the opposite. I'm like, no, science is incredibly important. So how yeah. do we, how do we have a better test? How do we better figure out what percent, how do we have a, a gold standard beyond just peer review? How do we have like a gold standard of, okay, this study must be independently reproduced twice without like any financial means or you know, p hacking or cherry picking data or different things like that. You yeah. know, how do we how do we do this? And I think that's a problem society has right now. Is is we all want to pretend like it's Democrats, Republicans, it's us, them, um, and and no, you know, we don't want to get to the heart of the issue. So I see that as being a pretty big thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Always, it, well, I think it'll be interesting to see, especially where we go from the future here. With like I I talked about in the last podcast a little bit with. Uh, with the large language models coming up, and I guess you know we'll we'll save that for another podcast because yeah. I'm definitely going to have to bring you back on. But um, with the uh, with the advent of being able to have access to these large database suppositories or repositories, well, suppos- whatever. <laughs> I, I mess that <laughs> one up every time that I go to say that. I always tell myself, "Wait, ruh, no, suh," and then I do it wrong and whatever. Hey, Anyways, you're- and just either way, we'll shove it up you one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, we'll shove it up you one way or another. But uh, now that you can have a no-code or a low-code type of uh, individual to be able to access these large databases and to be able to curate data in a specific way, perhaps you know the old way, not the old way, but the classical uh, paradigm of publishing data being under the facade of this story where we have to frame the story in the introduction, we give you the data, and then we right. tell you what it exactly means. And you have to, you, the only, you know, the only access that we have is to the published information and this published information is all under a certain premise of a story. And, and sometimes in reviews and things, you know, you can just purely look at the data and you can make your own interpretation. But sometimes that like sparks a little bit of a debate in the field, you know, sometimes because, you know, the people that were doing the study theoretically should know how they were framing it, you know, yada, yada. But if you strip it, the data of all of those underlying assumptions and how the problems are framed and you just look at the data, you know, what sort of interpretations can we make based on just, just the pure data alone? If you don't, if you get rid of us putting a thing on it, you know, like if I'm making a certain study, the whole introduction is me trying to convince you to understand the problem in the way that I understand it, which is going to put on a lens to when you look into, into my results. Right. Rather than just like just purely looking at the results section. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in the future. Yeah. I mean, LLMs are having now. Now think about debate, how big of an impact this is, because with these newer models, you can just be like, hey, write me a 10 minute perfect speech, including citations for why issue X. It's very controversial right now in the debate world. Um, And to to your example of like, you know, utilization of data. When it comes to LLMs, I mean, the problem of hallucination is huge. Yeah. And and even when it comes to, now let's go into the more technical, like I know you're, you're in the medical field, so you're getting these more technical papers. Um, a lot of stuff in the introduction at different points sets out the conditions under which the research was done. Yeah. But how often do you, you and I have even had these conversations, right, about ice baths or cold baths or whatever. Um what type of person was used for this study? Like, you know, we can say like X percent was the mean age, but that still doesn't tell us, you know, if we throw in 10 90 year olds, 
how much would that skew things in this study? Or were these people willing to go into an ice bath because they were largely healthy? Some of the studies will have the level of data where they really document that, but it's amazing how many papers come out. You don't know. Yeah. Like, like during COVID, right? Looking at morbidities and stuff. Um, we had to, a lot of states in the United States weren't used internationally because <laughs> this is unfortunate to say as it gets political, but we're so unhealthy our morbidity rates were so much higher. People were going, well, like, why is nobody dying in this tiny, you know, like West African nation? Like, yeah. they have no healthcare and people aren't dying. Why? They're healthier. That's really weird to say, right? The United States is so unhealthy. And so when when studies, when we don't talk about these sort these sorts of things, it can mess it up. But also, I think I, I like the way you phrase that, frankly. I think it's maybe controversial. Maybe you don't didn't even think about this. But to say <laughs> that these there's a storytelling to medicine. Oh, yeah. Which which implies there is a narrative. And yeah. if it's just a story, there might be more than one story. I know. Well, see, and that's where, you know, this is one of the the, the hills that I'm going to die on, at least, you know, as a, some as some part of. But I think I think it's important as being a practicing scientist to to portray that message in a sense of and and, and I don't mean to do it in a way to dis um, to, to like disregard um, you know, the, the hours and stuff that are put into what it takes to become a scientist. And of course I, I very much merit that and people that get their PhDs and things like that. And, and obviously I have one as well. Um, but to say that like for the ice bath, for example, uh, if I frame the whole paper about inflammation, right? If I do the whole introduction and I say this inflammation is if, if we look at the heart of disease, every single disease that we know of to man, has some sort of influence from inflammation. And if we reduce the inflammation, because it's a part of every single disease, we not, not only can we try to find a way to cure, but we can reduce the symptomology and we can reduce the progression of all diseases that are known, right? And then you go, holy shit, like that's amazing. And then you go, ice baths. The, the pure idea of cooling the body is a way to reduce inflammation. But not only specifically like an ice pack. If we put an ice pack on your elbow, it's going to reduce inflammation in the elbow. We can reduce inflammation systemically throughout the body, centrally, neurally, which is the primary cause of neurodegenerative diseases. And then I show you a person that's in an ice bath, and then I give you a population of 50 people, and I look at you know a systemic marker of TNF-alpha or IL-1 beta, which are just like basic infl inflammatory markers, and I can say it was reduced 50%. And if that's all you see... And then in the discussion, I talk about how it can be used and implemented into a, from a bench to the bedside type of translational implementation to make a cure. Boom. Like there's a whole thing that goes on. But if I take that data and I say, here's the IL-1 beta, here's the TNF alpha levels, here's norp. And now if it goes into a large database, now you put it next to, here's the norepinephrine values. Here's the adrenaline, which is noradrenaline. Here is, you know, the markers of... Uh, stress on the heart. Here's the calcium score. Here's the blood pressure. Suddenly you see you have, you know, three factors that go up that are detrimental to health along with three factors that go down that are detrimental to health. Which one's better? And now the story becomes like very much different. And if you take away the storytelling side of the science and you just give us access to the databases, it might shift some of the stories that have gone on. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I heard this about the, you know, there's all this talk around the blue zones, right? And the diets and they do, they do have some really strong 
similarities. But all of a sudden, uh, one thing that you hear talked about a lot, right, with this whole loneliness is the new cancer, um, you know, it, it, there's really good data around this and it makes sense and it seems to be there. But I heard this one doctor who was giving this talk and said, look, we can look at these blue zones and say it's about diet and things like that, which which is great. We can also look about uh, longitude and latitude. And when you yeah. look at where these people are relative to the equator, they all have certain things in common. They're also tend to be in certain points in relation to the ocean and they oh, tend to be yeah, in yeah. certain sort of microclimates. <laughs> and so when you put all those things together, you can tell a convincing story that yes, they have commonalities in diets. Yes, they have commonalities in culture. They also have commonalities on where they reside in the world and the average temperature. Mm. So does that mean that the most humans are meant to be at this temperature with this many hours of sunlight throughout the year with this amount of greenery nearby in this proximity to water. Yeah. And, and it's extremely hard to say, is this kind of like an emergent phenomenon of when these all come together is one a causation correlation that's hard. But then there's, I like how you're saying this about the, the storytelling, which is we oftentimes want to present a story in a certain way that makes sense. That's the art of debate. Make this make sense, make it resonate, make it memorable. Or great and I think writing. That's, what's that? Or great or, writing. Yeah. Or great yeah. writing or, or medical publications or anything, right? Make it impactful, make it memorable, make it something people will care about. You know, that's, and, and it's so built in our, to our society, good thing or bad thing. Let's just toss that out for a moment. Like it's just the way it is. It's such an art form. And I don't think you have to do certainly speech and debate to learn this, but that's that's speech and debate is kind of like saying, okay, let's let's especially the debate component, let's narrow it down to just like the structure of what makes that work. Just like you have not like when you're talking about inflammation receptors, right? I don't know if you made that up. I mean, I've had a little <laughs> bit, like I said, I did a little biomolecular engineering, studied a little bit. I can't remember it. You could have made that up entirely. You could have been like, hey, it's the uh, the uh, gummy berry, like 601, like alphas. And I would have been like, yeah, cool, bro. Um, but you, you told it in such a way that was compelling. And so what we do in debate is in the same way, we have all this technical term and, and knowledge and understanding, but we say like, what makes a thing compelling? Okay, well, telling a story over time, creating like geographic almost space with the arguments, uh, how do you lay out something so it does make sense? How does our brain process information? And what's the challenge is like, it's kind of like an intro to med school, right? They're not going to overload you with too much. At first they have to be like, here's the, I mean, I'm doing this a little simplified, but not too much. Here's yeah. the organs. Here's the subparts of the organs. Here's the role they play. Here's maybe a few key. Like I, I went further, like I said, in chemistry, you know, you're doing biochemistry. Here's some reaction pathways. Here's some general terms. Here's some tendencies on how these molecules tend to interact and bind. Here's the the physics behind some of it. And then you get down to the more detailed level. And sometimes you don't need to know that, right? Yeah. Sometimes you do. And I think that's, that's one thing that I really appreciate about any of these fields of expertise is just breaking down that nuance. But uh, the thing I, I see in common, and this is when you have a more debate mind, is you start to, I'm sure in medicine as well, you start to see certain medical, or like you're, you're into neurology, respiration, you probably start to see this kind of stuff everywhere, right? You yeah. probably start to see living animals and you're doing jujitsu and you're like, oh, here's how this is affecting respiration. Here's what I could do. Here's what I could not do. I think you mentioned at one point you were really into respiration i feel like we had this conversation something oh at point. yeah my well my my research in general is about the the neural control of breathing 
Right. And I think you said at one point you were really into, was it you or someone else had this conversation about like they're getting to running and triathlons and different stuff like that. And they really focused on their breathing and, and they were like obsessive about it and technique and how to regulate breath with step. And then at a certain point they just stopped and they found they were just as effective. Instead, they just ignored it. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like that's something that a lot of us can do when we have a field of expertise is we overanalyze and it's like, you can't, you know, if you took a single human cell, right, there's all these people that say this, like you could understand, you know, from a single strand of DNA, you get the entire story of a person. No, yeah. you don't. Not yeah. at all. <laughs> like if you put a single strand of DNA completely out of context, you don't know what it, like, it's not that it's not all there, but we don't know what to do. I can't give somebody a strand of DNA and they can't tell me every, we can tell certain facets. We know what certain mutations do. Um, and in the same way that you can't take a single cell from a person or a single organ, like there's, there's something that if you don't understand the micro up and the macro down, and what I notice a lot is in these fields, like debate, like medicine that, that really analyze something a lot of times they forget kind of those macro narratives and how they connect. But I feel like there's really a, I don't know. You, you tell me if you're noticing this too, there's kind of a revolution of saying, hold on. Let's stop just telling the story. Like I'm going to use this example of loneliness, right? Yeah. You no, know, we, we used to say that's a, a psychological thing, like going back to Freud or something like that. Right. And maybe there's these low level psychosomatic things. Those are powerful in a placebo sense, but now we're saying, whoa, 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 maybe these are like major physiological things that doctors need to account for. Even when it comes to like comorbidities and stuff like that, how many friends do you have? Are you yeah. depressed? Are you stuff like that? Like we need to understand it because we're forgetting these bigger stories about health. So it almost has come full circle on like a folk medicine. Like if you're not doing well, like <laughs> sit around the table and, and share a meal like that. Well, you know, the chicken soup with the family, right? Like yeah. you know, that actually might do something. And I, I see the same thing as in my field of communication, there was a movement to parse things down and make it. So, and then all of a sudden, like you notice that we're having these weird debates right now in our society. I mean, child labor is the one that just gets me because how are we having a renewed debate right now in public discourse about child labor? Oh, there's like, what is it now? It's up to like 21. Last I checked states are reintroducing bills around bringing back child labor. Yeah. It's so funny because we miss these, these narratives of, Oh, when does child labor occur when there's tight labor markets? It's not yeah. really complicated. Like, you know, right. we're making this thing about the ethics of it and Democrats and Republicans and all these different things. But it's like, no, there's tight labor markets. So industry tries to find cheap labor and the cheapest labor of all, our children without protection. Yeah. And so, you know, when you just tell that story, it actually helps better. I was trying to like diagram this and where's the interaction and what is it doing? <laughs> and then I was just listening to this one commentary. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's just, here's seven times we've talked about child labor in history. What was happening during each of them? There's industrial yeah. revolution. It was after the plague and worker, you know, workers were actually, I don't know if you've heard about this, but one of the results of the plague was, was poverty went down drastically Yeah, because they needed workers. So they were able to leverage and get higher salaries. So we're, uh, we're dealing with this thing where there's been a lot of mass death. There's yeah. low unemployment and they were like, put kids to work. So well, I just, that's what, that's what I mean. Where I was saying like almost knowing too much about a certain topic, not even, you know, that sounds bad, but knowing a lot of the details about a certain topic can almost make you a worse convincer when it comes to that or a worse advocate. I, I feel like, you know, even though I study the neural control of breathing, I'm the worst advocate for breathwork stuff that there is oh, really? because, because like with the exercise thing, for example, like, you know, we talk about if you can control your breath, then you can improve your performance and you can change the levels of lactic acid and you can modulate how your body is able to, uh, feel pain, which is like a major limiter when it comes to athletic performance. But at the end of the day, if I, 
if I, you know, do a preparation called a decerebrate preparation, which is where I remove the cortex from the brainstem, you know, and I just completely take the cortex out. So now the animal is only a brainstem animal, right? So they, they have all of the vital functions to live, plus they have a spinal cord, so they can do some motor things, but everything else is gone. And you put them on a treadmill and you make them run. Guess what? They're very good at keeping their breathing perfectly aligned with the metabolic demand of exercise. You can ramp it up, you can ramp it down, you can make them sprint, you can make them walk. Like their breathing stays the same. CO2 doesn't change. If anything, it goes slightly down. And the their arterial oxygen stays exactly clamped. Like it's perfect the way it is at regulating the amount of breathing <laughs> that is necessary without all of the inputs. And so sometimes, you know, knowing that when we start to get into all of the different integrated breathwork things that are going to, you know, unlock powers of consciousness oh, and will, I start to say, you know, without any of that, the body regulates it perfectly, like without you even thinking about it. So why are you messing with it? The only thing that you can do is make it worse. That reminds me of like the whole detox thing. I have, I have all these friends in medicine. They always are putting these memes like, you know, detox by drinking like, you know, six beets come out of lemon stuff or <laughs> use a kidney. It can filter through like this much. Like, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, you're not detoxing. Like, um, and you know, it, this reminds me of diet. I, I have a particularly sensitive stomach when I'm competing. So I would sometimes not eat for like anything other than like, like liquids and maybe some crackers or something for 24 to 36 hours easily. Um, maybe I'd have one meal in 24 to 36 hours. And I, I, I did pretty well. But when I coach kids, I'm like, eat a light meal, eat healthy, avoid these certain things. And then a lot of these debate tournaments, like when they're, they're extremely taxing, they're just like giving these kids like cheap crap pizza and like <laughs> Doritos or something like yeah. that, right? some soda. Um, and it just reminds me, I was, I was, uh, reading about chess players and God, have you heard how much weight they can lose over one weekend? Yeah. It's like, what was it? Like five to seven pounds in yeah, a week? I, I just heard that like a couple, like a month or two ago. And I went, what? Right. And, and, and so the, that you get these people like Magnus Carlson and others who have these very strict exercise regimes. And I've been really struggling recently with, with, uh, in my coaching, I've always tried to encourage students to think about their diet, their exercise, everything is, is integrated. And then I see these other debaters are quite good and they're just thrashing their bodies. You know, they're going through on nothing but like caffeine and junk food for an entire weekend and no sleep. Yeah. And it does make me wonder what is the role? There's something in me that from my own personal experience has found that there are things we can do to certainly harm ourselves and our bodies are amazing at homeostasis, right? What I think about more when I think of controlling uh, breathing, which might be interesting to you is, is, and this is the story we tell for me, it's not about CO2 or anything. It's about regulating the vagus nerve. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'd be very curious when you remove like, you know, these animals and stuff like that. Um, if they have, say for example, you had an animal and it was exposed to a predator, right? Um, I don't know if they can still relate if they're just, uh, uh, or excuse me, react if they're just like you mentioned, like no, they would just get mauled. They just get mauled. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is like, given that they're connected, right? <laughs> I don't think any of us wants to separate our cortex <laughs> from our brainstem. Yeah. Uh, you know, given that we're there, what is the difference that it would make if like, you know, I'm trying to think of an experiment. Like you, you, you take people on one of those like VRs or something where they feel like they're falling off a building and they're in pure panic. Yeah. Can you teach them a breathing technique to regulate or Oh God, this would be extremely hard to measure, but like, you know, do chess players that learn breathing techniques or something like that at, at peak mental performance, how much does that change? Because like, mm -hmm. I, I will tell my kids to use a, a, 
remember we talked about the personal and emotional earlier? When you're getting really heated in debate, I say use the face test, which is either if you can see it, is your face getting red or mm, does your yeah. face and neck feel hot? Yeah, if it does, sort of the flushing of the neck, yeah. If it does, you're losing control. And so I, I debated during the Iraq war was when like, you know, old school was when I was debating and somebody made this comment that Iraqis were like spoiled babies sucking off the teat of America. And this is when they were like, please don't leave. I've heard that I think it's you. like a million Iraqis were dying. There was no like call to come. They were like, please leave. Stop. This is horrible. And this person was just like talking about how, how, how infantilized they were begging for America to come rescue them and stuff like that. And they deserve whatever they get because they're just leeching off American dollars. And I was just like incensed. And the person was just also doing that fun thing of like, not just playing fast and loose, but I think just making up things like, you know, a sure. hundred thousand American servicemen have died in Iraq. And, you know, so far, like there's been what, you know, like a thousand Iraqi civilians killed. I'm just like, you're, you're literally flipping numbers beyond here. This is insane. And so, uh, you know, I got up and I remember thinking, I'm just going to demolish them. Like, I'm going to explain why this is morally reprehensible here. Here's why you're wrong. Here's why we said it's unethical. You know, here's what you weren't even on the right topic. And and here's what it's about. And here's now here's my whole case, you know, that I thought was locked tight. And I lost. And I remember walking away feeling like morally, ethically, like there's this great temptation in debate to walk away and go. That was a bad judge. You know, yeah. I lost because yeah, yeah, yeah. of the judge. I lost because the umps, you know, you see it's in every major sports thing, right? But the difference is in debate, it's entirely subjective. There's no point chart. I can go, look, the judge got it wrong. So I have to just go, the judge got it wrong. And I walked out of there. I was so ready. I'm like, judge just botched this. They, they bought these garbage arguments. And I thought for a second, I thought, you know what? I wasn't in control. Like I wasn't like, con- I don't know where I messed up, but that's the problem. I could mm-hmm. feel myself getting heated. And so when it comes to like breath regulation, these sort of autonomic systems, I remember thinking I felt so hot during the round. Like literally, <laughs> I felt like I was burning up. I'm like, oh my God. And so it just was this little mental note. And I started consciously thinking of this as I was debating. I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm feeling like all of a sudden, like it got warm in the room. And I, I'd literally like, you know, go in and just go, okay, on to my next point. I was just yeah. that one breath and pause and I, I mean, quite seriously, it made a huge difference. So for me, when, when I t- think about breathing and stuff like that, and I, I've truly wondered this, um, was that a placebo? Was it just a psychological thing? Was yeah. it just a ritual that helped me regain control? Was I regulating the polyvagal, you know, the nerve by just pausing my breath for a moment and resetting those biosystems? I have no idea. Um, yeah. And that's one thing where, you know, I don't know. I mean... Breath yeah, guy, well, what, I mean, do you, what do you think? That, I mean, that's the, that's the biggest that's the biggest argument of, and this is where even and and we'll wrap it up here pretty quick. I know. <laughs> hey, I'm looking. You're you're a convincing you're a convincing talker. This is fascinating. <laughs> it's, uh, but you know what the thing is is with um, where you're uh, what was the, we were talking about where you know the more that you can break down a problem, perhaps you know even though it might be more factual, it might not be as convincing. But at the same time, if you take someone that doesn't have a huge background into the knowledge and then they're the ones that come up and they say, let me break it down for you. And then they spit out surface level information that doesn't have, you know, it's not as far as it can go. And, and I see that now a lot of times. That was the biggest thing I noticed, you know, with myself, especially with a lot of people that go through graduate school or something, because you learn a ton about like a very single mechanism. 
a very single singular topic. And, you know, like for me, that might be breathing or for someone else, it might be inflammation or a certain cancer or something like that. And then you hear a social media post or you hear like a, a health and fitness post or something like that. And they say, let me break down the mechanisms for you as to why this happens. And they say, well, your breathing regulates the chi of your body, which enhances the vagus nerve tonicity and changes the gut or something like that. And you're like, what does that even mean? Like, I, you know, those, what, what are those tone, what, what are the terms that you're using? And, and you want it in, in you something that, you know, lights up and you want to light this person up and just say, tell me what you mean by vagus activation. The vagus has sympathetic, it has parasympathetic, it has afferent and efferent signals going through it. And so lighting up the vagus nerve, like, that could be good. That could be bad. That could be indifferent. Yeah. That could be going down. That could be going up. Either way, the signal is going to be the exact same if I stick a probe in there and I record it, you know? And so like, and, and sometimes I feel like, um, you know, so, you know, that's, that was what I was going to ask you about being interesting is that kid, do you see it, you know, playing also against you if you try to be an expert on a certain topic and then suddenly you're not, as much of an expert as you thought there's, you know, oh, yeah. sort of having that notion of there's always a bigger fish in the water, I think can be sometimes a good thing. And maybe that's wrong, but, but, um, I forgot where I was going with that. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if you're asking like, um, in terms of debate, does that apply or, or I have seen the problem that debaters and I, I felt this too, like all of a sudden you feel like, because you have to talk about so much and you have to talk in such a convincing way and diagram it out. I see it's in philosophy as well. You're like, okay, I get everything now. Like I, I can be an authority on everything because I understand these yeah. core reasoning and ideas. It's not true. Um, but that bigger, bigger issue of like are really good debaters, great politicians, lawyers, and all these things, not necessarily. Like sometimes you get so good at this this game, like you're talking about, like you learn how to say it and everything just right for this niche skill, and you get so good at it. Um, like for example, in really some formats of debate, you're speaking at three to four hundred words a minute. Yeah. conservatively and if you do breath work you probably know how many that is like yeah. some people can get up to 600 words a minute that's that's not intelligible for 99.999 right. percent for most people way. like you're breathing like six to you know you're breathing let's say like i don't know 15 breaths a minute 15 20 breaths a minute average let's just say yeah so after this about, just, that's like a couple hundred words per breath yes yeah they actually the, the, there's this technique called a double breath where they're talking they go <laughs> to get enough air because you can't do it in one breath. And, and there's all this, you know, afterwards you might find this fascinating, go to YouTube and look up like videos of it's called debate spread. Right. And so these people start to learn to talk so fast and they can do it in this really complex way where they're still analyzing and keeping like critical thinking and engagement. And the judges really like it. And sometimes it's almost like a, Whoa, you know, like look how fast they can go. Um, but there's also a lot of like superficial, like the responses start to become, a response that you would you would be as as a medical expert or something like you know you were talking about the the vagus nerve and somebody's like you know no you can never look at the vagus nerve because there's a, a synaptic firing in the brain you're not considering that and they just move on you're like wait what <laughs> like that doesn't like that those aren't mutually exclusive they don't that might actually inform each other like what are you saying yeah but in the debate it's like oh great you had a response really quickly and you know if they don't counter it you move on yeah, and then that person yeah. goes into the real world and they start like, I don't know, I've seen people actually do this. So when I first started getting into debate a little more seriously, there was a guy who had a lot more, I, I didn't get to start debate in high school. I didn't start debate until I was actually going back. Like I said, after going to the sciences, I went back and this one teacher literally dragged me into it. Um, and after 
trying it out. I loved it, got super into it. So this, this kid came who'd done it for middle school, all of high school, and that was doing college. So definitely, quote unquote, like better than me, right? Knew the whole field. Yeah. And he would always talk like this as we're talking right now. You never really slow down. You always kind of have like these superficial things to say. And I kept thinking, like, do you really know about debate? Like, what are you doing? Why are you always talking like this all the time? And he'd say, you know, I have really something to comment on. Let me let me tell you a little bit about the structure of debate, how you're going to interact with the judge and everything like that. And it sounded weird until I started hanging out with debaters. And that's kind of how they talk because you only have so much time. He was, that was him uh, slow talking. He couldn't turn it off. Sure. So I've seen this with medical professionals and, and other types of, I'm not going to say so much like doctors because I think they deal with a lot of people, but people that, you know, let's say they're research writers or other things, they go to these conferences and I don't think they have that ability to rein it in. I guess that's the best way I can put it. Yeah. Like they don't have that, um, they don't have that ability to say, I've learned this certain skill set. What about the rest of the world? And it can lead them to one of two big things. One, being unintelligible to the majority of the population. Yeah. Or two, they actually develop blind spots. So again, this isn't an, just like yourself. I'm not like I'm a, I'm a coach, right? This is my job. I clearly yeah. believe in expertise. But I think the whole point is I, I think we need a lot more interdisciplinary on a broad field work. I think we do need people that understand and ground things. So you can have the expert that tells you this one little niche thing that nobody else will understand and get to. But I think what we desperately need right now are a lot like kind of on the meta level of our society. You know, there's chat GPT that can give you all the information in the world. That's exactly what's going through my head. (laughs) Right. Maybe accurate, maybe not. And we got these, these people that want to be opinion peoples and everybody's getting distributed on like, you know, YouTube and all this other stuff. We, anybody can talk. I think what we need are people that actually have a good understanding about a lot of things and some medium expertise in one, because otherwise these fields go in isolation. Yeah. And so I know there's there's exceptions, right? You're developing a new vaccine or something like that. You know, you you don't want to have some dude who has a thought on aesthetics sit down and go like, you know what? I think it would be prettier if you're designed your vaccine this way. That that might not apply. Um, but there are a lot of our contemporary problems are societal issues, and to be solved, they're going to need people that have a broad understanding about gesturing broadly at everything you know yeah. like just everything well that's why i almost see i almost think with the large language models going forward it, it almost opens up a new niche in the fact that especially with, i know i know it's being controversial within the scientific publishing route because it's now suddenly you know it can create these publications or it can create sort of a, a dialogue that can go with a publication at a much rapid much more rapid right. rate than you could ever even imagine and it can give you references and everything like that and suddenly, you know, historically, I, I, I think a lot of people that do research aren't necessarily the, the, you know, communication is not something that is taught or communication is not something that is put forward right away until you go to publish your manuscripts and then you sort of develop it over time just by nature of having to do manuscripts. But either way, sometimes that can be difficult because you're very good at collecting data, you're very good at doing the surgeries and everything, and now all of a sudden you're put into a position that you have to communicate that, and that takes time to develop and things like that. And now suddenly you have ChatGPT, you have BARD, you have all of these different language models that have access to the same data that you have, but they like they're they're like the whole basis of them is language and so right. the way like the, the way that they are able like they as an ai you know is able to communicate a topic is what it specializes in and suddenly you know now what you know why you know it, it almost like removes a part that was something that you were becoming good at because mm-hmm. of a necessity 
right? I have oh, to be I able see. to translate what you're saying. I have to be able to translate the data. And so I've developed whatever skill it is that is necessary. And I'm obviously going to defend it because it's not something that I was professionally trained on, but it's the way that I think is the most accessible. And now suddenly you have something that takes over that skill that you've been developing for the last however many years to, to, to communicate your own data. And it can do it better than you can way faster. And I see a big pushback against that. And it, it sort of splits the field to say, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll stay agnostic to it, but, but basically like, you know, you see one party say, well, guess what? Like now it's just a new skill that you have to learn. You have to learn how to drive these language models in order to communicate what it is that you're finding. Right. And another group is saying, you know, don't let it take over. Um, you know, we should be the ones that are yeah. communicating the data because we're the ones that are actually collecting the data. And I can see, you know, pros and cons of both, but yeah, it'll that's be- like, that's like the uh, the whole Luddite, you know, throughout history, right, is is everybody always argues a new, the problems of a new technology. I mean, uh, I think Socrates, right, was talking about the ills of reading and writing and how it will corrupt <laughs> the youth of Athens by not, you know, uh, I always mix up Socrates and Plato on here, but I think it was Socrates who was saying, yeah, if you if they're all learning how to read and write, it will corrupt them because the spoken word is, is the way these things were meant to be translated. And, you know, it sounds comical, right, that books back then were the bad thing. But I mean, just... Every, every generation has come up with the and and I think here's the catch. Ready for this one? I think they're right and wrong. Yeah. Like there is something actually lost and there's something gained. And usually we go with whatever one people perceive there as being more gain, whether it's true or false. And there's a pushback that wants to keep it. Like there's there's still people that are like, no, the theater matters, art matters. I think that'll always be a thing that I do love, though, and this is getting more into like political, my field. I love that this technical revolution, it's going to be different because it's the first one that doesn't threaten, like you know, the the worker on the factory, the like blue yeah, collar yeah. versus white collar. This is the one that's going to go after lawyers and doctors <laughs> right, right. And, and artists, and you know, this is the one going after the privileged class. Like, what are we going to? What's it going to be like? Like, let's say we we we've passed the singularity. And uh, this will have to be our next podcast. <laughs> we have a part two, but you yeah. know, there's this argument that as soon as you have AGI, you have SGI. Yeah. Like as soon yeah. as you have an artificial general intelligence, it will be so good that it will be able to advance itself that we will have super general intelligence that surpasses us. And so some people already are, are I think they're premature, but some people are like, we're already there. We already have SGI. It's, it's Bard's chat GPT. It's these LLMs. But let's say they get like, you know, they're getting pretty good pretty quick. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you've heard Sam Altman and others, I think I've said like, this might be the best they go. We need something new, but let's say it's not, let's say in like three weeks, like you are doing a podcast with like, hello, I'm simulated, like, you know, debate instructor alpha seven, six. And, you know, let me tell you the entire history and the collective wisdom. And, and, you know, they're, they're making predictions about breathing that end up coming yeah. through just from using their data sets. Um, who will become the most valuable people? Yeah. Like, the people that know how to use them, sure, but pretty soon it's going to be better than them at knowing how to do it. It will be people that like make furniture or can make a good cup of ramen because no LLM will be able to physically make the ROM. Maybe they'll eventually be able to make robots to do that too. So I think we're coming into a weird potential moment of revolution yeah. where technology is no longer displacing the working physical embodied working class it's it's attacking at our ability to be the ones to think and write and create art i mean look yeah. at the writer's strike that's going on literally right now in hollywood over over ai generated scripts they're not doing that because it's not going to happen they're doing it because they're like oh crap this will be cheaper more affordable and hell maybe like 
from a studio executive, like imagine if you could sit here and say, I want a comedy that will appeal to 18 to 45 year olds. I need this to air at this time. I need to do this, that, and the other, write it. And then you get, and you're like, I don't like that. Rewrite it all in three minutes. And they're like, yeah, okay, here's boom, 10 seasons. Done. Yeah. And then switch it. We got Danny DeVito now. <laughs> boom. Rewrite it. Yeah, you know what I mean? So, uh, how can a human being compete? It'll be interesting to see. And, uh, and then we get to talk about rock consciousness, you know, as well and see if this thing's conscious. <laughs> yeah, right. that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, that's what I, uh, I, I was talking, you know, in a group one time and I said, I, you know, I think going forward, it might be interesting to see because I think at least in the research academic world, the, the, the power structure as it, as it is right now, you know, at the top are the ones that are writing the grants and then it goes down from there to, you know, from the ones that are conceptualizing the ideas, writing the grants and communicating the information down to, uh, those that are doing the experiments. It's just as far as like a pay scale type thing goes. And I think now, you know, it, it's going to shift perhaps a little bit more of the power back to the experimentalists that are the ones, because, you know, large language models can create hypotheses. They can, they can, uh, communicate ideas very well and they can create compelling stories, which are, you know, part of the grant writing process and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it can't do the surgery yet. You know, so it, it can't do the actual physical experiment. And so now suddenly if you give that tool to someone that is able to do really good experiments and, you know, it, it seems like you, you know, there, there are those, sort of uh, special individuals and they tend to rise up that that are very good on the bench and then they are also very good at at writing and translating and grant writing and everything like that. But typically, you know, as you progress in one field, you start to lose the ability in the other, right? So as you get better at yeah. grants, you start to lose the experiments. And so now all of a sudden, like, you give all of the tools that this group has of grant writing persuasion and you give it to those that are really good at doing experiments. Now they have both of the tools in their hands and it's like, whoa. <laughs> this is where narratives are so powerful because um, a lot of times I think we have this this discussion of can we do it, right? Then there's the should we do it. Yeah. Um, and then, then there's, I think there's even another connection of like, uh, why are we having this conversation? And I think kind of when you take together those three steps, like can we do it? Should we do it? Why this? I think you get a, a really good understanding. I think right now, for a long time with AI, I mean, frankly, like all the big, you know, AI tech companies are saying that that's where there's that big letter. It's been, can we do this? Like, can we make something? We're like, oh, we can make something really cool. And now everybody's screaming, should we do this? Yeah. <laughs> and I think what's interesting is we're not asking the the final step. I think maybe we're transitioning. I don't think they have to go in this order, which is why have we done this? Hmm. So, so I heard this quote the other day. It was, it was, uh, no, it might've even been earlier today. I was reading about the writer strike. And somebody asked this, had this just one little line. They said, how sad is it that we're living in a world where robots and super AI can take over work for humanity? And that's potentially a bad thing. Mm, yeah. Sh shouldn't we be living in this like ultimate, <laughs> you know, this like, oh, we don't have to work so hard to get food and shelter and all our basic needs. And we're like, oh, my God, how's it going to affect our grant writing and everything else? And this is where I think um, some of the things that debate is pushing towards and it, it, and it helps and interacts with this is what does this say about our society? Should we should we pause for a second? We can ask, should the AI do it? Should this that or the other happen? But also like. Why is our society structured in such a way that these changes are happening? Yeah. And yet literal, uh, you know, we're the land of the LLMs, right? And all these amazing technology, we're the wealthiest nation on earth. And our life expectancy is going down. 
It's yeah. not in the rest of the Western world. <laughs> People are less healthy. We're having a loneliness epidemic. Like, you know, it's it's not just can we should be, but like what's going on in our system that that we're having all this? Because I would love to live in a world where somebody once said this, like how many amazing ideas and life-changing things haven't happened just because somebody couldn't write a grant, didn't have enough money or something else. Mm-hmm. Like what if instead of just grant writing, uh, you know, these systems are able to say, oh, there's easily enough resource. You have this little random idea. Oh, just do it. Like we have excess, like, you know, fun fact, there's more vacant housing in every major U.S. city than there are homeless. Like yeah. these aren't these aren't unsolvable problems. They're problems that we just haven't figured out. Like, why, why are we not solving them? So it'd be really fascinating to see, you know, help. Maybe LLMs themselves will will start saying this, but I think, you know, a combination of humans and, and I'm not a, a real big like cybertist, you know, I'm not big yeah. into cybernetics and, and uh, but I think on a human level, we need to start uh, asking ourselves what positive changes could we make where we don't have to rely on like, not just the, like, can we make this tech? Mm, should we make this tech? But, you know, what's going on with this tech and how can we use this to actually like systemically change it? And why why is it playing out this way right now? Because I think we can look at that and say, oh, there's some bigger problems. So like you talked about, like small individuals having access to this stuff, man, give the average person access to untold amounts of information yeah. and ability to utilize it. I don't know. It'll be Game big. over. No. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting. All right, Briar, this has been fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Obviously, we went an hour over what we were supposed to. <laughs> oh yeah, I haven't even been watching. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. dude, it's the time flies. It's we're, and and we have to have a part two. So cool. even then, even better. Awesome. Yeah, it was dude, really fun to be here, and and uh, I've enjoyed our conversations previously. It was really fun. So I definitely would love to uh, join you for a a part two, or get to get into some philosophy and stuff. Like yeah, that. So, yeah, absolutely. So rss.com slash neural network, Apple, Spotify, Google, Pandora, tune in every any sort of podcast player. We're on there. Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Neural Network. We got content. We got short little videos of content. You can learn about sneezing or at least, if nothing else, see the dog sneeze. But um, anyways, have a you good know day. why people really come here, yeah? Yeah, we know why they come here. <laughs> <laughs>